Hello and welcome to episode 93 of Commonplace. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. You're about to hear a conversation between myself and one of my dearest friends and most frequent collaborators, Ariel Greenberg. Ariel Greenberg writes and teaches poetry, creative nonfiction, and cultural studies. Her most recent books are I Live in the Country and Other Dirty Poems, published by Four Way Books in 2020, and the creative nonfiction book Locally Made Panties, published by Ricochet Editions in 2016. Her fifth collection of poetry, Come Along With Me to the Pasture Now, is forthcoming. Ariel is co-editor of three literary anthologies, including Girlesque, based on a theory of third-wave feminist avant-garde poetics that she developed. She wrote a column on contemporary poetics for the American Poetry Review and edited a nonfiction column for The Rumpus called Kink, Writing While Deviant. A former tenured professor in poetry at Columbia College Chicago, Ariel teaches at Maine Media Workshop, the College of the Atlantic, and elsewhere in the community, and does other writing and editorial work. She lives in Belfast, Maine. Although not included in her official literary bio, Ariel is also my personal fashion, home decorating, and sex advisor, and all-around treasured wise woman sister witch for over 20 years. I first met Ariel in 1996. I'd recently graduated from the Iowa Writers' Workshop and moved back to New York City. I was living in Columbia graduate student housing with Josh, who was getting his PhD in American literature. I was teaching prose composition in NYU in what was then called the General Studies Program, or GSP. Wanting to continue writing and living in a community of writers, I went to the creative writing department offices at Columbia and NYU to ask if there were any non-credit courses I could take or writing groups I could join. Maybe a community bulletin board where I might seek out listings of local readings and gatherings? Yeah, I was met with total disinterest. Undeterred, I decided to start my own group. This is a lifelong theme. So I made some flyers with my phone number on lots of little tear-off squares, announcing my intention to start a peer poetry group. I went back to Columbia and NYU and proudly handed over a few copies of the flyer. I'm sure the administrative assistant threw these directly into the trash. I also hung these signs in my favorite bookstores, including the Gotham Book Mart on 47th Street, right near my father's office. Ariel saw my sign at the Gotham and responded. A lifelong relationship began. It wasn't love at first sight for either of us, not even about each other's poems. Ariel had joined the group because she was thinking of applying to MFA programs and wanted help with her poetry submission. After about a year of reading each other's work, Ariel went off to get her MFA in poetry at Syracuse. There, she worked with Mary Carr and Michael Burkard. At Syracuse, Ariel also met Rob, a fiction writer who she later married. I still have the bell on my writing desk that I rang at her incredible wedding. While Ariel was at Syracuse, she and I kept in touch by writing letters. And soon after graduating, or maybe when she was still actually in her MFA program, Ariel's first book, Given, was accepted for publication by Verse Press. 
Simultaneously, my first book, Eating in the Underworld, was finally in production at Wesleyan University Press after a two-year-long acceptance process. We commiserated and celebrated on design, editing, and cover negotiations and marketing by mail and by phone, and we grew very close. A few years later, Ariel and I went to a tribute for Sylvia Plath at the New York Public Library. I write about all of this in my book, Mothers. At the reading, Jory Graham said that when she was coming up in poetry, her influences and mentors were all men. The few women she read, Sylvia Plath, Emily Dickinson, Elizabeth Bishop, were either childless or dead. Ariel and I marveled at the fact that this was not at all the case for us. We were perhaps the first generation of American women poets with an entire generation of living women poets that we look to for guidance, inspiration, and mentoring. We decided to solicit original essays by women poets born in the 1960s and 70s about a living woman poet who had directly or indirectly mentored them. We wanted to print these essays along with poems by the younger and older poets. We wanted to document this shift and examine what, if anything, was different about being mentored by a woman. We worked on that anthology for years. Beware the pleasures and intricacies of soliciting prose from poets and the woe of getting permissions to reprint published poems. But I am deeply proud of the final project, Women Poets on Mentorship, Efforts and Affections. After beginning work on the mentorship anthology, but long before the book's publication, and before she was even pregnant, Arielle told me she was planning to have a home birth when she became pregnant with her first child. And she invited me to attend the birth. I'd had two children myself, both medicated vaginal births in the hospital, and I was not convinced at all that home birth was a safe or good option. Still, I was deeply moved to be invited and wanted to be the kind of person who was a good presence at a birth. I knew instinctively that I should not be present unless I supported Ariel's birth choices. So while Ariel grew her first baby inside her, I signed up for and completed a doula certification program and attended three births. Luckily, Ariel is quite a planner and ended up having a five-day labor, so it turned out that I had plenty of time to fly from New York to Chicago to be there with Ariel and Rob and several rotating home birth midwives for several days to support Ariel and welcome Willa into the world. At this time, Ariel began a listserv called the Poet Moms Listserv. At any one time, there are about 100 poets who are also mothers on this listserv. We talk about parenting, publishing, teaching, sex, social justice, divorces, our children. It's an intense, sometimes infuriating, sometimes literally life-saving space that Ariel created and moderates. Many lifelong friendships have been born in that group. Two years after Ariel gave birth to Willa, I gave birth to my third son, Judah, at home, attended by my home birth midwife, Miriam Schwartzchild. I had attended a few other births by then, had become a birth activist, and was fighting to help pass the Midwifery Modernization Act in New York State. I was studying to become a childbirth educator. 
Right around the time of Judah's birth, Ariel discovered she was pregnant for the second time. She was teaching a class on subcultures that would later become a textbook, and together we decided to start a document about home birth subculture. For most of 2007 and 2008, we wrote about home birth and birth, our own and others, about our friendship, Ariel's pregnancy, birth plans, and Judah's infancy. We wrote about feminism and infant mortality and hospitals and interventions and midwives, misogyny, our mothers and our bodies. Shortly after we came to what felt like a good stopping point, Ariel noticed that she had not felt her baby move for a while. Somehow, many states away, I knew something was very wrong. In a long moving afterward, in what became our book, Home Birth, a Poemic, Ariel writes about her discovery that her second baby had died about 30 weeks gestation. She writes about flying from Illinois to Maine, waiting for her son Day to be born, and about Day's home birth, water birth, stillbirth. A few years later, in 2009, in a fit of optimism, we started a blog together that became a book called Starting Today, 100 Poems for Obama's First 100 Days. Not many copies were sold, but many friendships and another community of writers were born from this. Home Birth, a Poemic was published in 2011 by 1913 Press. We read from the book Young Children in Tow at Prairie Lights, at Smith College, at a few community centers. While mostly ignored or rejected by the literary establishment, the publication of Home Birth led to some of the most intimate and meaningful interactions with readers and listeners that I've ever had. Because of Ariel, I became a birth worker and a birth activist, had a home birth, rethought so many things about myself and my life, including childbirth, parenting, motherhood, feminism, monogamy, marriage, sex, sexuality, pornography, nutrition, Maine, and of course, poetry. From and with Ariel, I grew to trust and love the power of collaboration. I went from someone who became a writer partly because it was a solitary activity to someone who wanted all my literary projects to be community-building projects. Someone who came to feel that anything worth doing is better done with others. I tell you all of this because in the conversation you're about to hear, Ariel and I don't talk about how we met, and we hardly say anything at all about the first 10 years of our friendship. We just jump right in and start talking about where we are now, about her most recent book, My Impending Divorce, and a book about menopause that we started writing but never finished. We talk about ethical non-monogamy, sex, kink, fetish, masculinity, femininity, abundance and scarcity, erotics, and poetry. This episode is full of explicit language and almost obsessively acknowledges the existence of sex, physical intimacy, non-normative sex, non-monogamy, as well as some of Ariel's and my very particular and personal thoughts about masculinity. So you might want to listen to this one without your kids around or maybe without your parents. Although when I warned my dad about this episode, he said, I think I'm better off listening to it than imagining things. If you do listen, we'd love to know what you think. 
How do you define queerness? Has your relationship to gender changed in the past decade or so? If so, how? Do you consider yourself to have an erotics? If so, what is your erotics and how is it related to your poetics or your aesthetic practice? We are excited to try something new with this episode. Within a few days of airing it, we're going to have a talk back during which Ariel and myself will be live online for about an hour to answer questions that you might have about the episode or about Ariel's creative work. The talkback will be at 4 p.m. this coming Friday, Eastern Standard Time, on Zoom, and possibly also on YouTube. Check our social media for the link. We invite you to share your questions or thoughts beforehand or join us live. If enough people are interested, we might try to continue these talkbacks for future episodes. For this episode, some members of the Commonplace Book Club will receive a copy of one of the following books. I Live in the Country and Other Dirty Poems by Ariel Greenberg, courtesy of Four-Way Books, Locally Made Panties, courtesy of Ricochet Editions, also by Ariel Greenberg, Home Birth, a Poemic by Ariel and myself, courtesy of Rachel Zucker and Ariel Greenberg, and The Collected Poems of Frank O'Hara, courtesy of the University of California Press. All patrons will receive access to Ariel's list of recommended sex podcasts and fashion podcasts. For more information about how to become a Commonplace patron, please visit our website, commonpodcast.com, or our Patreon site, patreon.com commonplace. As you know, Commonplace has no ads, no institutional support, and relies entirely on the support of listeners and patrons like you. Okay, so working on this episode led to several powerful and passionate conversations amongst the members of the Commonplace team. In this conversation, you'll hear Ariel talk about her relationship to queerness, her experience of seeing life through a queer lens, and some of her ideas about drag. As with all of the Commonplace conversations, the ideas and feelings and thoughts and artistic practices, or in this case, erotics of the guest, are personal to them. As edited and time-bound documents, these conversations are inherently incomplete and specific to the time and place that they were made. Even though this conversation is long, there's so much that Ariel and I did not get a chance to discuss. One of the phrases that comes up again and again in our book, Home Birth, is, we haven't even begun to talk about and that's how I feel about this episode and about every conversation I have with Ariel. Despite the hours and hours of conversations that we've had on the phone, in person, on the page, through email, in poems written to each other or not to each other, we haven't even begun to talk about. My relationship with Ariel is one of the most complex, sustaining, provoking, and inspiring relationships of my life. I am very excited to share this conversation with you. The conversation begins with Ariel reading, at my request, her poem, I Am an Animal, from her book, I Live in the Country and Other Dirty Poems. 
Here's Arielle Greenberg. I am an animal. First, I was an animal. First, I wanted to be an animal who survives, who lives, who eats yolk and red fruit, who drinks clear water, who sleeps down in a tight, thick curl all winter, who daisy faces toward the summer sun when it peeks out, who runs, who hungers, who fucks. First, I wanted to fuck, to turn this moment all the way into my flesh like a starred sky and think of nothing else, to explode. First, I wanted to explode and be exploded into, to wet all over, to be filled with creamy life, to be sticky, to be pregnant. First, I wanted to be pregnant, to breed, to extend past the length of my own bruised limb, to sow, to expand everywhere like a broke up seed, to burst in the dirt of it all. First, I wanted to birth, to moan and quicken with the moon and squat in the dawn and push and scream the names of gods I never cared about before, to pop the blood in my eyes with the effort, to split in half up the ass, to come as close to death as possible, to loll a head out of my vagina and squat there, doubled, mothered, knowing it. First, I wanted to mother, to eat the smell of new skin, to feed this babe from my own calloused and bitten inches, to feed on its love, to never sleep, to sleep like fur, to obsess, to squirt milk when I made myself come in the dim few hours alone. First, I did not want to come. I wanted to do nothing but nurse and sleep and not sleep and prod gently at my other body as if it were a fossil beneath the deflated and heavy fat of my body and to mother. I wanted to mother that baby right up. First, my baby stood up and stopped nursing and I wept and let my arms hang down and went for a run and my body excavated itself from the extra fat and something sparked in me, a flint that was that other kind of animal sense again, tiger, bear, firefly, wolf, bunny, buffalo, bitch in heat. That was my libido that wanted to fuck and I set the baby aside in a warm, safe nest and went out hunting again and again. A cycle of seasons of mating and fucking and sleeping dormant and breeding and raising up cubs and sniffing their slipperiest hairs, their powdery drool of wanting. It comes, it flows. When I am full of a child and then when my arms are newly full of a new child, we are a bubble on a stream and I am practically nothing but milk and lowing. Then the child walks and the milk dries and my body thins and all I can think about is skin and tongues and fat and muscle again. And then I wanna fuck and I wanna come and I wanna be knocked up and I wanna only carry this baby so its heartbeat is directly up against my heartbeat and I wanna sleep and I wanna run in the mud and I wanna dance and I wanna eat red meat and I wanna fuck. Because first, blessedly, I am an animal. Yeah. <laughs> When I read that little the stanza about birthing, I'm like, and you were there. I know. Remember I, when I had a little head hanging out of my vagina? <laughs> I I can we just say vagina over and over again for two hours I mean, and have that be our happen. I know, I know. <laughs> Listeners might be noticing that there are some sexy words in this poem and that um, this poem which is the first one in the book sort of before the book really starts 
it's it's written in in these sort of prose paragraphs so it doesn't look exactly like poetry on the page right right at first and maybe it doesn't sound like the kind of poetry you might expect from a book of poetry published by Four Way Books or a book of poetry called I Live in the Country, even though there is the and other dirty poems. Um, so, yeah, talk about this book. What what the fuck? What is yeah, what this the book? Fuck? Yeah. Um, this book is the book I wrote because I chose to leave my tenured job position in Chicago uh, at Columbia College after uh, an adulthood of only living in large cities and move with my young child and husband at the time to rural Maine where um, my husband and I, well Rob and I had been coming for a number of years to this particular town and really loved it and we're thinking about, you know, could we possibly do this crazy thing of like leaving our city life and moving to this place in Maine where we had no careers and nothing, no family, nothing. And, um, and kept thinking about it. And we, I had a sabbatical, which then turned into a maternity leave dovetailed into a sabbatical, which we decided to take in Belfast, Maine. And, yeah, and then we returned to Chicago briefly, and then we were like, no, we're actually going to do this thing. I'm going to quit my tenured position in a creative writing program with a graduate program and a really a great job in all possible ways, and that was unheard of. And I went to AWP that year, and a poet that you and I both know well, who shall go unnamed, mm-hmm. said to me, um, a white male poet, we should say, um, said to me quite seriously, oh, I heard you're going to become a blueberry farmer. Oh. Hmm. I, it was like, it was a weird experience that year at AWP because like it was clear the word had gotten out ahead of me. It's a very strange thing to do to leave a tenured position in a MFA program in creative writing. <laughs> I mean, all of our friends at the time, you know, want desperately wanted these jobs, especially in a city like Chicago, like it's a great location, it's a great school. And it was like it was like one of those movies where you walk in and everyone's like turned around. It's like in a like in Jane Austen, <laughs> everyone's like at the ball and everyone's turned to each other whispering, like, oh, she's the one you left to tend your job. And I think, you know, to rationalize it to themselves, everybody was like, oh, well, she's like going back to the land. And Mm. I mean, I was in some ways, but Rob and I were very clear. Like we looked into being, we weren't going to be farmers, but we looked into like buying land outside of town where we would really have to be like stewards of the land. We actually, this one specific property I'm thinking of that had many acres and these beautiful gardens. And we just looked at each other and we're like, we'd ruin it. We don't know how to do this. Like we're (laughs) terrible at it. Like that's not what we're, that's not our skill set. We are going to be the people who like live in town (laughs) and write about this. And like are part of this community, definitely, but not farmers. And, and then, you know, um, and we moved to Maine and then, and I didn't work, I didn't have a job waiting for me. I I think I was teaching part-time and I had a very young I had young children. I had a six-year-old and a two-year-old and I was still nursing my two-year-old and I was like, this is a totally different life for me where I'm, you know, really like taking long walks with my two-year-old every day and, you know, do like 
growing garlic and baking sourdough bread. And I mean, all these things that now it's funny during the pandemic, I feel like we're all kind of like, Ooh, a slower pace. But, and at the time it was also trendy. Like there were definitely, you know, many books coming out on the subject of like choosing this simpler life, um, as there have been for decades, of course. But the other, the unexpected thing that happened once we moved to Maine, which also happened almost immediately, is that I had the space, as you and I have spoken about many times before. <laughs> I thought about having a caveat at the beginning of this conversation, by the way, of like, just preface every single thing I say with, as you know, as Rachel knows, <laughs> as, as we just spoke about this morning, um, mm-hmm. but as you know... Uh, you know, this kind of space opened up and part of what happened when that space opened up was I was like, oh, I'm done having babies. I'm not working a full-time job. I'm almost 40. Like, this is a new stage of my life. What do I want to do with it? And the answer was not blueberry farmer. The answer was (laughs) definitely more fuck a lot of people. Um, (laughs) And... uh, you know, I think we had just also come to a place in our marriage where we were like, okay, we did the thing where we were in grad school together. And then we did the thing where we had baby for the first time. And that was crazy. And we did the thing where I got a tenure track job and we, you know, we did like, we'd done a bunch of things and now we were in this different stage and it felt like there was room for a different stage of our marriage. And we had never been um, particularly adherent to monogamy as a principle of our marriage. We had not put anything about it in our wedding vows on purpose, but we'd also never not been monogamous. And, but we had friends who were ethically non-monogamous, close friends who talked to us about it. And um, I just started listening to podcasts about sexuality. And one of them was hosted by somebody who was in an ethically non-monogamous relationship. And I was like, huh, maybe this is a thing that we could do. I mean, I've been somebody with a lifelong interest in sexuality and human sexuality, like alternative sexualities, and have always felt sort of most drawn to and comfortable in that community, but also never really was part of it because I was a serial monogamist from the time I was very young. Can you briefly uh, explain what ethical non-monogamy is? I mean, it's, sure. it's what it sounds like, but it's not a phrase that, that some people right. know. And polyamory is a phrase that's maybe used even more, and I don't use it for a number of reasons at this point, although I, I did at the beginning. Um, so yeah, I mean, non-monogamy is, uh, you know, when you have sex with more than one partner, not in like a dating capacity, but you're you're with one sort of one or more <laughs> primary partners, serious relationships, and you also have sex outside of that one kind of central relationship, and most people are non-monogamous. And wait, I, you said central, not consensual. I did say central, that's true, but hopefully consensual. Yeah. And the majority of Americans are in non-monogamous long-term relationships because the majority of Americans cheat on their partners. Um, And that is non-ethical, non-consensual non-monogamy. And so consensual and ethical non-monogamy is where your partner knows that you are having sex with other people and um, is... Uh, you know, on a on a continuum of how on board they are with that, but at some level they are, you know, consenting um, to that as your relationship structure. Um, yeah, and I would say like beyond even just having sex with other people, like that's in a way sort of 
reductive or like not the point. Or I would say for me, it's like not so much about the multiple partners as it was about exploring um, the sort of non-normative aspects of my sexuality, which have been with me since childhood and which really um, color my lens in a, in a, or my worldview in a way that I can only, that like for which, you know, the notion of like a queer lens, um, is the, is the best, you know, analogy or metaphor that I ever can find is this idea that like you literally looking at the world through a different set of eyes, than one is led to believe that you will, or, you know, one is prepared for. And it, it really, it makes you feel like an outsider all the time and, and very conscious of your sort of othered status or other way of seeing things. And that that um, is something that I never was able to uh, fully or intentionally explore in relationship with anyone else. And that felt really important to me to do. Can you say a little more about the queer lens? Um, this is something that you've talked about uh, I, when you came to visit my class a few years ago. Um, and it's it's also, I think, uh, provocative to some people. Um, to, so t- say a little more about what you mean by that and what you mean about non-normative um, sexuality. Sure. So, yeah, I mean, if you are queer, then um, you grow up knowing mostly for the most part, I mean, definitely when we were younger, uh, that you are supposed to like and have crushes on certain genders and, and be attracted to certain genders and present your own gender in certain ways. And, you know, these are kind of default modes of, of presentation um, and desire and you are aware all the time that your actual desires do not fit with those expectations and assumptions about you and who you appear to be on the outside. And so you're constantly walking through the world, like readjusting or, well, filtering the world through this lens of like, I know I'm supposed to find that attractive, but I don't. And I find this attractive and that's weird, you know, quote unquote weird, or that's like not okay. Or, you know, I have to hide that. That's a secret. And also these things that are not supposed to trigger uh, desire or lust in me do. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know what to do with that. So like now I'm in a situation where I'm a boy at a boy's camp, a sleepaway camp, and I've been put in a cabin with other boys to keep me away from the people I'm supposed to be attracted to. And instead... I'm a boy who's attracted to other boys and I'm seeing other boys strip down and get naked in front of me every night. And and, and I'm in this situation and it's supposed to be like totally fine. And I, it's completely bizarre for me because like, this is actually my dream and my fantasy. This is awesome in some ways. And in other ways, it's horrible and torturous because I can't tell anyone, like God forbid somebody would find out that this is how I'm feeling right now. Um, and this is what I'm seeing, like that I'm supposed to see this boy's sleepaway cabin bunk. <laughs> this is like some weird uh, movie that I'm writing right now in my head. But like this boy's sleepaway cabin bunk is like a completely platonic, neutral, you know, zone. And instead for me, it is the most highly charged. It is the opposite of that. It is the most highly charged erotic zone I can fathom. And and when one goes through life like that, when one goes through life um, 
seeing that the things that they were supposed to not be turned on by are the things that turn them on, that the things that they're are supposed to be turned on by don't turn them on. It's like you're just constantly having to negotiate that, um, you know, how much you reveal about that to others and like how you, how you respond in the moment and, and, and genuinely how you see things. So, you know, like the way I was first taught about the queer lens was through like film studies, uh, and this idea that you could watch a film that a straight person could watch a seemingly straight movie and be like, oh, great, this is a, you know, rom-com about blank. Mm. And that a queer person could watch the same movie and be like, oh, mm. this is definitely a movie about me and my non-normative desire. Like a desire that the culture doesn't recognize or acknowledge or validate in any way. And so Wizard of Oz is actually a movie about what would happen if like... I got to go to a gay bar in the West Village or like, you know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, not literally, but, um, you know, that you're just you're every, every site and text and like thing you encounter in the world is altered just by virtue mm. of your, of your lens of desire that in which you go through the world. So, you know, for me, like the things that I find most sexually arousing I am queer, but I'm also um, a fetishist and uh, like someone with a kinky um, sexuality. And so for me, like as a very young child, I knew that what was most arousing to me was stuff that was not supposed to be arousing. Mm. And that was also everywhere in the world because it's it it's not considered erotic to the normal imagination. So I won't talk so much about mine right now, but like you can imagine, let's say if you're somebody who's really into rope bondage, if you're like a kinky person who's into rope bondage and you're a child and, but you're already like have that in your sexuality and your, I would argue like sexual orientation and you're watching Saturday morning cartoons and in every single Saturday morning cartoon, someone is tying somebody else up to a tree or up <laughs> to a railroad, you know, um, railroad ties or whatever and you're just like sitting there with your siblings, you know, supposed to be have like laughing. And instead you're like, this is the most exciting thing I've ever seen in my life. And I know I'm not supposed to feel like that, but I do feel like that. Mm. And it also feels like it's being, it's talking directly to me, but I don't think it's supposed to be. <laughs> it's so confusing and it's also so charged. Um, and it's so defining. Like, I just think that my whole sense of self, you know, I feel like my sexuality is just one of the many parts, but is maybe in some ways the most sort of central and long lasting, like, like thread of me that is, um, yeah, that just sort of defies convention and, and makes me operate in the world from a different space. Yeah, I mean, I think it's so fascinating. I was uh, saying to Moses the other day, I don't remember why we were talking about this, but somehow I said, I wished that I had been born a little bit later in terms of uh, into a time where there was more language around gender fluidity and 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 more awareness. Like I, I feel like I'm really, like everything in my life right now is about 
kind of breaking down binaries. Um, and so it, it, it just feels like this is the work in, in so many different arenas. But, you know, when I was a kid, it was, it, the binary was you're straight or gay, maybe you're bi, but that just means that you haven't come out of the closet enough or you haven't like learned your lesson. You know, it was, it wasn't even really a kind of, a in my, in my circles, uh, you know, you're a man or you're a woman. Um, it was, it, there, there was not language around that. And, and Moses said to me, like, you know, well, what would that have changed for you? And I think that, you know, as you know, I, I'm a cis woman who ha- I've only had sexual experiences with men, um, but like, I don't even know what it would have opened up for me. I still, and, and I don't want to, um, I don't want to call myself queer. I don't feel that, that I uh, have any right to, but I also know that I don't feel straight or I don't feel straight in the way straight has been defined to me. And I think that, you know, largely that's come from, talking to you, from watching you live your life, um, reading your poems, thinking about sexuality and desire and pleasure and, and also, you know, stuff that's so basic that I'm just shocked continually at myself. Like just even the idea that like not all men are the same in their sexuality, nor are all women. Or what even makes someone a woman or, you know, all of these kinds of questions. And so I think that, you know, 10 years ago, maybe, I mean, I don't remember the first time that I really heard you call yourself queer, uh, but it's got to be at least 10 years ago. But I remember thinking like, oh, is that, I wonder if that's going to like rub people the wrong way. That's a funny euphemism to use. (laughs) Um, uh, Because you're a cis woman who not only has sex with men, but, and was, and has been married twice to men, but also really likes men like I do, um, and Mm -hmm. masculinity. And so I want you to read the poem Chassis, because it's one of my favorites. But also what I want to talk about is your feelings about masculinity, but also I mean, lately I've been sort of like, I mean, this, we have to talk about our friendship to, to even get into this, but I do feel like I'm constantly 10 years behind you and it's really annoying. So I'm like so late to the game in every single way. But one of the things that I'm really struggling with is how, how to be a feminist and heterosexual, how to have sex with men and not uh, feel straight or not conform or be conformed by straightness. Um, can you can you be can you have sex with men um, and still hate the patriarchy? Can you love masculinity or desire or be attracted to or compelled by or even obsessed with masculinity and not have it be a sign of like deep internalized misogyny? Well, this is where it'd be really useful to bring Maggie Nelson back into this particular <laughs> podcast. I, I'm like so wish she was here right now. But um, yeah, I want to talk about all that stuff. And I want to talk about, I realized as you were talking that, you know, when I mentioned the idea of the queer lens, I didn't mention the notions of drag and passing and that mm. those are also really central to like the things that we're talking about right now. 
Um, and I don't, I want to be really careful not to like claim drag or passing as a cisgendered woman who's always been a cisgendered female person, um, female identified person. Um, and you know, definitely thinking about racial passing as well Mm -hmm. that I'm not claiming that either. Uh, but to know that like we all, again, that's a continuum and, Maybe not all, but many of us, especially the, us, those of us who um, feel like weirdos in some way or another, which I would say is probably like all writers at least, are doing some level of drag or passing, you know, at most times in our lives or at many times in our lives. And so we're like trying to pass for normal or conventional. Yeah, I mean, we're all doing a little bit of drag or a little bit of passing, you know, in many of our daily interactions just to kind of get by, to to mm-hmm. to get, you know, a transaction <laughs> to happen successfully. And so another thing that really has colored my lens is that I was raised by a second wave feminist who had really bought a lot of the second wave principles around, like, girls should get to be tomboys. And I think, you know, my mom... Uh, identified in some ways as a tomboy and definitely was not super into like very feminine um, stuff like some but not a lot and I was her first child I was born in 1972 and I think she was really like yeah you know like I'm not gonna I'm gonna give my kid a sort of androgynous name uh, the way it was originally spelled which is like the Shakespeare is like this famously androgynous character no who knows what the gender is of this character um and it's actually, like, in Hebrew, a, a, a masculine-identified name. And so she was aware of that, too. I mean, there's also the Sylvia Plath book had just come out. Like, she was definitely thinking about all of those things and, you know, wanted to dress me in overalls. And, and I was also raised with this really strong sense of feminism. And I identified really strongly as a feminist. I can't remember, literally, a time in my life when I did not. But I also was so drawn to these, like, feminine, ultra femme, what I now know to call femme, trapping. So like even as a very little girl, you know, my mom was like, here, you get to wear pants. You don't have to be like I was in the 50s, like shackled by your petticoats. And I was like, I just want a petticoat (laughs) more than anything in the world. I just want to wear like a petticoat and a corset and like the most, you know, restrictive, cumbersome femme (laughs) like historically femme trappings and it wasn't and I was so uncomfortable in that space for so long like I was really like how do I you know as a child of the 70s and 80s like how do I how do I be a good feminist who just wants to wear skirts and makeup and 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 so so coming to a queer understanding of what it means to be femme was also like the first time that my gender presentation made sense to me uh, with my politics. Mm. And like this idea that actually it can be super, sub- that it is subversive to like consciously take on these markings of these gendered markings of femininity as a cisgendered female um, while totally being oppositional to what those have meant politically, historically. Uh, that's that's femme. Like to my mind, that is what it means to be a femme. Mm. Um, every time I put a hair bow in my hair or wear knee socks, which I do like most days, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm really aware that like that's weird. I mean, it's not 
you know, to my mind, that's not like me just being like, I'm just, you know, an average 48 year old woman putting a giant hair bow in my hair. Like, first of all, it's not normal in our culture. And second of all, like, it feels political to me um, to kind of be like, put these girly things on my body and go out into the world as a feminist who um, has a career and speaks her mind and, you know, takes no shit. Okay, but all right, even though I, I'm not, I don't believe in binaries, I'm trying to get away from them, I do think that you're putting two things together that I, that I sort of want to talk about separately. One, but they overlap for you, but not as much for me or not for me. Um, so it's all about me. So the bow in the hair is, is, is femme or high femme, but it's also, uh, about girlhood or, or, you know, and so, you know, obviously we, we, if we don't talk about the girlesque at some point, that's crazy. (laughs) Um, but that, but that's also interesting to me because I feel like you're, you're talking as if those two things are, are connected, but one, uh, is, is about not necessarily chronological age, but, uh, age related and one is more gender related. Although I would say like in this context that, um, obviously there's like infinite numbers of ways that somebody can be a femme, but that, uh, you know, there's like certainly historical precedent for, um, like a pinup girl kind of thing to wear like a giant bow in your hair or, um, like a, you know, Japanese Lolita subculture to wear like knee socks and Mary Janes or things like that. So, or even like riot girl, you know, or, um, to put baby barrettes in your hair or things like that. So there have always been femme categories, like sort of subversive femme categories that have taken, girly young girl stuff Mm -hmm. and kind of like reappropriated that in adult womanhood right right and that um I think everybody listening can understand how complicated that might feel to put alongside uh feminism right um yeah okay you want to read chassis sure um Oh, and can I say, well, we'll get to masculinity. I guess this is a great segue. To, I'll read that poem, and then we can talk about masculinity. Mm-hmm. Chassis. The moon is full tonight, nearly. My gut knows it. No, you misheard me. I said my cunt knows it. No, I said my wolfy hair curls from it. But I only saw her from the kitchen window tonight and didn't even roam into any forest at all which is, after all, what I came here to the country to do. What good is a community in the slosh between winter and spring when I live inside my head house with the fire going? What good's an open marriage when I'm so goddamn choosy and don't go outdoors when the, mo- when the moon pulls my name? Everyone here has a truck, has a pickup. And what I love about men is how they are men, the whole goddamn machine of them. The chassis, the engine, the drive shaft, the flatbed. How they constantly jack off into their own big hands. How they are hardwired, as I have come to believe, to ignore context and just see the damn trees. I do understand them, actually. They make total sense to me, the way you know where to put me, even if you're not built like I am. Trust your totem animal. Trust the moon. 
I have come, which is an act of believing. I believe I've, I have believed this way probably 12,000 times in my life so far. And you are hard now. It makes me wired to know so. How you act like your chromosomes when the silver disc is lodged in my throat. No, I said my throat. No, I said, just tell me where you want to put me and what you want to do. Mm. I just wanted to, that, I just I wanted like, to hear you say drive shaft <laughs> and flatbed. <laughs> I also was like, oh, now you know, because now you live in Maine. And you're like, oh, the fucking trucks. Yeah, but also, uh, yeah, but also what good is a community in the slosh between winter and spring, which is exactly where we are right well, now. Well, no, we're not even there yet, girl. Okay, okay. Wait, okay. April, April. Jesus, it's a nightmare. All right. So, yeah, talk about, talk, masculinity. Um, what were you, what so were you going to say? masculinity, yeah. yeah. I mean, so I was going to say, like, I am super attracted to masculinity as a form of drag by which I mean I'm interested I'm very interested and attracted to the performance of masculinity I am not interested just as I am not interested in a straightforward presentation of femininity and if a woman you know has that like specific Instagram blonde hair and the like beanie with the pom-pom on top and the leggings and like is carrying her Starbucks coffee cup a white woman we're obviously talking about I'm just like, that feels totally alien and foreign to me, and I have no um, connection to it as a mode of femininity because it just feels like purchased out of a box and not considered at all and not subversive at all. I am so actually, frankly, terrified of like unfiltered presentations of masculinity if a if a man has never thought about the fact that he's masculine and is just like I'm just a man with my truck and you know my ATV and whatever and you know my football and whatever I that man is very scary to me and not interesting and or not not interesting I mean in a way like really interesting because so exotic and foreign but sort of unknowable and not appealing but if a man or actually even more to the point a person of any other gender is like I am stepping into this role of masculinity and taking on its markers and fucking with it and or even just like it's a kind of drag for me because it's actually not how I most feel on the inside and it comes from a place of you know having to put this on either partly because of maybe insecurity or feeling like an outsider or feeling marginalized and partly because there's something about this that I really want to engender, uh, you know, as like swagger and, um, you know, assertiveness or things like that, that I find super appealing. I mean, I find other gender presentations appealing too, but like that one I find, you know, it's definitely the sort of yin to my yang of like femme presentation. Mm-hmm. And in a way, it's like, I would say it's most pure form is like a kind of old school, butch, um, non cisgendered person. I've never been in a long term relationship with somebody with that gender presentation. But it is like, the most like if if I'm out in the world, and somebody catches my eye, it is more likely to be that kind of person than anybody else. Which is interesting, because and I want to come back to like your autobiography um because where we left off was you're uh living in Maine you're uh 
you're kind of not a blueberry farmer. <laughs> Although blueberry farmers can want to fuck a lot of people oh, too. Sure. Yeah, totally. yeah. But you you were like, oh, who I am is, you know, what I'm really feeling is this. Um, but masculinity, I mean, one of the trappings of masculinity that I'm interested in is, or one of the presentations of masculinity is, how do I say this? I'll say it and then you fix it. A lack of insight. But what you are talking about uh, in the performance of masculinity, I think requires a level of insight that I don't associate with quote unquote true masculinity. Yeah. I mean, maybe insight, but I would say um, what's interesting about drag, right, is that it's not necessarily born out of insight as much as it's born out of, like, really shrewd observation. Mm. Um, and part of what happens when you do a drag performance is you are you are kind of, like, mimicking or taking on or, like, really embodying uh, things that you've observed without maybe this, like, crucial in, insider insight of, like, what it's like to walk around in that body all the time. Um, so, you know, like I could talk about Mike, my husband now, who is, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that he's like enormously, um, intentionally conscious about masculinity, but because he was a boy who was raised, um, without a father, uh, whose father died when he was young and who was like a very smart, geeky, shy, non-violent boy who was growing up in a community where none of those things were valued he had to really observe how other boys and men operated in the world and like learn how to perform that Hmm. um and you know so I always think of his masculinity which I think he also feels very comfortable in and it's not that it's not comfortable for him Mm -hmm. or it doesn't feel authentic to him I think it does feel really authentic but it's also like learned Mm -hmm. it's not inherent to him Mm -hmm. he had to really figure it out and like play at it you know kind of like fake it till he made it Mm -hmm. um and that you know I I I think it's somewhat unusual in the cisgendered men that I've known at least and I think it's like born out of the very particular circumstances of his life as a boy Um, And, like, sort of who he is in the world and how he presents. He's also, like, a very masculine-looking person who, like, went through puberty really young and has, like, a lot of facial hair and stuff like that. Um, So I think he really had to also kind of come to some understanding of how he was seen and how that – how he was seen was completely uh, disconnected from how he felt. Mm -hmm. You know, I think he was, like – he was an offensive lineman on his football team and – you know, I think he was really seen as like strong and sure of himself and masculine and like mature. And he felt totally at sea and, um, vulnerable all the time. Mm. (laughs) Um, yeah, more than maybe a lot of people. (laughs) Okay. So, so if anybody has been listening carefully, they might be thinking, wait, I thought your husband's name was Rob. (laughs) Your husband's name is Mike. Um, so just to, to, stay with this for a second, the kind of masculinity that you are describing that's both authentic and learned for Mike is not the kind of masculinity that characterizes the men that both of us married. 
initially. Yeah, totally. Yeah, so Rob is my first husband, and he, I would say as somebody, I mean, he would say this about himself, is like super uncomfortable with with presentations of masculinity, and read a lot of Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon in the 80s, Mm -hmm. and feels like, um, I think a lot like Moses, not to drag Moses into this again, but like, you know, very highly uncomfortable with presentations of masculinity, has a really hard time of locating a kind of masculinity for himself that doesn't feel toxic or problematic and and also doesn't pre- present as, like, super masculine. I mean, I think a lot of people have thought he's gay and he's always had, like, a lot of women friends, although so has Mike. But, um, you know, he's he's, like, a softer-spoken you know, smaller bodied person, um, you know, bookish, you know, those kinds of things. I mean, the truth is like Mike is also bookish and shy, but Mm -hmm. he doesn't look like that if you were walking down the street. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that, you know, just that difference in physical appearance is like, would be fascinating to talk to both of them about, um, how we kind of like figure out how to both work with what we have and work around what we have or transform what we have to kind of better fit the selves we think of our, you know, we, we know ourselves to actually be. And do you think that, um, choosing Rob, um, was a conscious choice in some way of like, I want to, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll say for myself, I, you know, since I'm in the process of getting divorced, um, these questions are are somewhat uh, hard to escape for me. Like, why did I choose Josh? You know, what did that mean? You know, and I, I and I think there were so many reasons um, that it's ridiculous to to simplify it. You know, to one thing, but I I do think that there are many women I know who either consciously or more likely, you know, more often unconsciously had children with someone that seemed very loyal, very smart. Uh, and I'm, I'm not saying Mike is not these things. I'm not saying masculine presenting people are not these things, but that, that the things that like maybe really drew us to them uh, was a, was like qualities that through sort of like cultural training and maybe biology as well, uh, that they seemed safe um, that they seemed like they would be good fathers, um, that they, you know, weren't abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, it's really tricky to, to, as you explore in, in this book, and as we've talked about many times, what is the relationship between masculinity, uh, violence, toxic masculinity, risk, pleasure, desire, excitement, size difference, wanting to be literally or figuratively swept off your feet or held down or slapped or dominated. Um, and, and, you know, I'll say in my own case, I certainly picked, a, a, a life partner who was not dominating. Right. Me too. Yeah. And I would say the other thing, um, that's, yes to all of that. And the one thing that I would say that wasn't on that list is that, um, and I don't know how, you would say this about Josh, but um, that's another whole thing. Like that, I'm talking about this having known Josh for yeah, how many years? Twenty five years? Yeah, twenty five years maybe, almost. I Me, mean, not quite, but yeah, not quite twenty. Yeah, twenty. 
that, I mean, I was definitely choosing Rob after two back-to-back relationships with men who were extremely emotionally withholding. Mm. And Rob, um, although it's something he has to really work on because it doesn't come naturally to him, works really hard on being emotionally available and likes to process feelings. Um, And that was, I think, perhaps the number one thing I was choosing and which certainly feels gendered, right? Like we think of masculinity as being emotionally withholding and femininity as being emotionally available. Although, of course, that's not (laughs) patently true. It's a false Mm -hmm. binary. But um, yeah, I mean, I think I was choosing that. I was choosing responsibility. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you said safety, but I think um, responsibility, like dependability, um, you know, like we could, that, that I read that first poem, like these are things you want in a co-parent and, you know, which an egalitarian feminist of the 21st century wants in a co-parent. Dependability, responsibility, emotional availability, both for you and for your children. Mm. And maybe even more for your children than for yourself. Like I was, I think I was pretty consciously picking, you know, a father for my kids and, I mean, the truth is, like, there's a lot of ways in which Mike is all of those things, too. But I guess I would say that what, and this is sort of where my fetishistic sexuality lies, is that I'm really attracted to that kind of, like, dangerous zone that you get into where you cross over from responsibility to irresponsible or taboo behavior or from kind of dependability to like recklessness or indulgence and it's a really fine line and I feel really fortunate that I found a partner who like for the most part walks that line without crossing it into ways that genuinely feel scary to me although it's happened mm-hmm. which I've never talked about so we could talk about that but um yeah and in those moments when it happens like it's like wow what did I what did I get my you know this is what I wanted <laughs> Like, you get what you, like, be careful what you wish for, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's, that's rare. Um, For the most part, he is, like, a totally responsible partner. But, but it wouldn't, you know, our relationship wouldn't have the spark that it has if there wasn't always that threat of otherwise, which there kind of is. Yeah, yeah, that's real. Yeah. I mean, you know, so, so before we get more into that, what in the world does any of this have to do with poetry? I mean, on the one hand, I think both of us believe deeply in poetry as being a place to write about all the things. And that even when you were talking earlier about being a child and realizing, wait, the world was not made for how I feel and who I am and and the and the isolation of that and yeah, maybe uh, if you're lucky, you grow up into a, a, a self-proclaimed weirdo who, you know, who's, who's that's like this glorious celebrated um, identity, but it's very painful. And so like, you know, if, if, if we don't write about sexuality, about non-normative sexuality, about birth, about bodies, about all these things, okay, we know that's a problem. And and I, I don't mean to say like, okay, so therefore we shouldn't talk about that. But I think I think in your work in particular, and maybe in my work, if there is work, 10 years from now, because <laughs> that's how it seems to go, that it's more than that. It's more than just, okay, uh, we should, you know, it's important to you to write about who you really are. It's it like, talk, talk a little bit about why are we talking about 
sex, sexuality, all of these things. Like, what does this have to do with being a poet, being an artist, being alive? Like, why should anyone care if if somebody's listening and they're like, well, I don't have a fetish. I don't, I'm not that interested in kink. You know, my sex life, you know, has nothing to do with, you know, why, why are they talking about this? It's not a sex podcast. <laughs> it's not a sex, that, is it not a sex, oh, shoot. Well, okay. I want it to um, be a sex podcast from now on. <laughs> from That's now on. all I want to talk about. But I, I want you to justify it. That's what I yes, want. I I'm asking you. you for that. I hear you. Okay, so a couple things. First of all, I think that we both feel that poems are the place we go to not just express things that maybe you know need to be expressed or ought to be expressed politically or whatever, but all, but mostly, number one, we write poems to figure out our own shit mm-hmm. and you know, which is also the sort of basis of our friendship and like why we're basically having a therapy session right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I mean, I think we're both, you know, like many writers, although not all poets, I think we both could like name many poets who are not, doesn't seem to be like this, but like we're mostly interested in how the human psyche works mm-hmm. and our own human psyches first and Form, or at least like to start with um, as a starting place and the poems are the place to like figure out what we think and feel and we could have a whole podcast about this but you know we both started with the confessionals and mm-hmm. I mean I talk about this all the time but like there was a book in my house that had my name on the spine and that book was Sylvia Plath's Ariel it was one of the only poetry books in the house I think my mom really bought it partly because she was thinking about naming her first child this and it was like really in the news right around the time she was pregnant with me. Mm. She wasn't like a poetry fan or even, or a Sylvia Plath fan. But when I was a really little kid, there was like a book in my house with my name on it and I read it. And so that like Sylvia Plath's Ariel is the first poetry I really read. And I read it again and again and again. And so when I think about, so why write poetry and what kind of poetry what we write is never far from me from Sylvia Plath and the rest Mm. of the confessionals and that idea of like making interesting playful darkly humorous art from and through personal and somewhat confounding and difficult and um not appropriate to talk about lived experience is you know I've never really redefined it for like I I haven't really rethunk that you Mm -hmm. know over the last last over many years so I'm still pretty much writing from that you know sort of confessional mode and um and the motivation for writing these particular poems came from a very specific place of, yeah, not a blueberry farmer, but like this notion of like what it means to be wholesome and in this category of mother, which I had really become to be a so very strongly associated with because of you and other things <laughs> and things that we wrote together and did together. And, um, and like the, you know, and the irony, of course, that if you're in the category of mother, then somehow you're not in the category of sexual being. And also from a very feminist uh, sense, um, motivation of wanting to write poems about sexual pleasure, which I did not see existing in contemporary American poetry. I was doing a lot of reviewing of poetry books at the time. 
I did this whole girl-esque thing, which meant I was reading a lot of books by female-identified young poets who were writing very sexually frank and explicit work, but it was not about pleasure. Like, the the weird, avant-garde, interesting, um, funny work was about tr- sexual trauma, and the, like, serious, confessional, narrative, linear poetry was about sexual trauma. Basically, if women identified people were writing about sexuality it was about trauma which yeah duh like we live in a rape culture it's not surprise and it's it's just real um but I also felt very strongly and always have felt very strongly as a feminist that um there also needs to be room space for expressions of feminist sexual pleasure and agency as well and I was not seeing that the only place I was seeing real expressions of sexual pleasure was in poetry by gay men mm-hmm. and even that is was few and far between like for every book about that from a gay uh poet there was three books about sexual trauma by gay poets um so I was in some ways writing very consciously into a void of of, ex- of feminist expression do you think that um, there was such a dearth of poetry about sexual pleasure? And I would say actually pleasure in general, but let's just stick with sexual yeah. pleasure for a second because people weren't having sexual pleasure or because poetry had become, and, and not just poetry, but writing and art in a way had become a kind of like market for trauma porn, you know, that, that, that it was like, why would you bother writing a book if it wasn't about your trauma or who would be interested in this if it wasn't, you know, cathartic in a certain way? Well, right. I mean, so then we trace that back to the confessionals. And then we also, I would say, would trace it back to like both of us kind of came of age as poets in the 90s which was the time the rise of memoir and most of the memoir that was really selling and doing well was memoir of trauma uh sometimes sexual trauma but lots of childhood trauma and other things which is certainly also out of the sort of confessional poetry vein so that that market is is definitely a thing uh that was there I think also a lot of people women but people generally have a hard time accessing their sexual pleasure and agency because they have experienced trauma because we live in a rape culture and most people have and that that is just again like a fact borne out by misogyny and the patriarchy and I think there's like another factor which is like the Amy Schumer skit about how you're not supposed to say if you're happy or acknowledge compliments um, as a as a woman specifically, I guess I would say, but even larger in the culture, like you're not ever supposed to be like, I my marriage is fantastic actually, I love my job and I think I'm really pretty. Like it's just not okay. You're not supposed to say we you know we we hear all these messages about like don't put yourself down, don't you know, don't talk about how fat you are, don't talk about you know, whatever, like how bad you are at your job, like how lazy you are at your job. But we're also not supposed to be like, I rock at my job and I love my body and I think it's gorgeous. Like neither is okay. There's like no room. So, um, but certainly in literature, I would say 
it's for the most part like really not okay to write about how happy you are. I mean, I think that's starting to change mm-hmm. thanks to Ross Gay and mm-hmm. um, you know, some other really fantastic poets. But again, sort of like in the 90s, uh, wasn't happening so much. Yeah, I see this really fascinating kind of swell of interest in the BIPOC communities with writing around pleasure and joy and gratitude and celebration and kind of the acknowledgement of the importance of the permission to write about uh, trauma, racism, you know, historical or current uh, suffering and oppression, but that when you only do that, in a way, it's a it's kind of like a uh, white supremacy wins. Yeah, it's capitulating in some ways to yeah. to to what the oppressor wants from you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the sort of hashtag Black mm-hmm. Joy. Yeah, it's so important, right, to just like claim some space for pleasure and happiness and joy, and I mean. I'm speaking perhaps maybe really only about for marginalized peoples in various ways or for underrepresented voices. I don't really think we need cisgendered straight white men to talk about how happy they are, but um, they're not happy either. Mm-hmm. But they also don't, <laughs> they, they also don't have productive ways of expressing either their frustration or their pleasure, but also they don't, um, acknowledge their that their frustration is coming from like a sense of entitlement. I mean, I guess what's different there is like a sense of entitlement to happiness and pleasure, mm-hmm. which is very different than for the rest of us who feel like that is hard earned and hard won and like not generally accepted that that's where we're supposed to be. Yes, to everything you're saying, and I'm having an I'm having another one of those moments right now where I'm like, yeah, I fucking hate that entitlement, you know, and uh, you know, and then I'm like. Okay, if I'm honest, I also find that incredibly sexy. Like I think that's a piece that's a part of masculinity, you know, or the or my association with masculinity of like that I want to be close to, which is, you know, not connected to any kind of body parts, but I am entitled to this pleasure. I am entitled to live my life to the fullest. Mm-hmm. I I want mm-hmm. if I if mm-hmm. I see what I want, I'm going to take it. Now, in in you know, outside of the bedroom, I don't want any I don't want anybody acting like that, uh, you know, but right. And even in the bedroom, you want to you want to mm-hmm. make it clear that you want that ahead of time. But yeah, the ability um to make demands uh unreservedly is um foreign to most of us, mm-hmm. uh, I would say including probably a lot of straight, white, cisgendered men, but but I would say it's like almost exclusively the purview of straight white men in power who feel on a daily basis like they, that it's okay for them, that it's actually expected of them to make bald-faced demands, no apologies. Mm-hmm. Like when when was the last time you or I and we are among like the stronger willed, more opinionated women, even we know, um, has said like, can you do this for me without being like, sorry, excuse me, please. Oh, I'm sorry. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. Do it for me. Yeah. Like, and I, I, don't I mean, know it would be a joke. It's, uh, <laughs> well, okay. So this is the whole thing. Let's go back for one second, which is, 
you were saying that also you had been, uh, you know, you were a mother, you are a mother, but at this time in your life when, you know, you were still married to Rob and you were living in Maine and you were associated with motherhood. And I was thinking about, you know, how all of the things that you were talking about, about how difficult it is to claim one's pleasure, to celebrate pleasure, to, you know, rather than to feel apologetic and embarrassed or, you know, ashamed, um, if you can even get to a place where you can retrain your your brain to go towards pleasure as, as opposed to... Or feel anything other than shame or guilt right. around it. Yeah. So all of those things, I think, for most for most people, being a parent and especially being a mother heightens those kind of strictures that are kind of already in place. And it's, and it's, and I think there's so many kind of societal expectations around what mothers are supposed to find pleasurable and not pleasurable, what kinds of freedoms, what kinds of things. And I just, um, maybe I'll have you read this poem in its entirety later as a patron extra, but I if if you don't mind, I just want to read the very beginning and the very end of Mostly You Are Worried About My Children. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or maybe you can. Um, and now I want you to do it. Okay. Mostly you are worried about my children. But I was fucked to make these children. They came from fuck, from the way my O opened and hugged in R's semen in a frothy late summer slick of mucus. The first baby came from how I wanted a baby, but the second and third came from how I wanted a fuck. I mean, it's just a great poem. And the the question in this, um, which I think has been a major question in your life, and I love the way it comes up uh, about two-thirds of the way through the book, is this question that, you know, when I describe your life to anybody, then exactly mostly what they are worried about is your children. Yeah. You know, as yeah. if as if any woman who is exploring welcoming sexual adventure, exploration, you know, all these things, um ethical non-monogamy is by definition like but what about the children? Or or can we say an artistic career? Yes. Like your mother. Yeah, <laughs> for example, and you uh, yeah, who's like going away on book tour or, you know, a rock tour or going off to shoot a movie. But what about the children? What about the children, right? And then uh, the last stanza of this, you say, I hope they love as many as they want with love pouring back, that they fuck healthfully whom they choose, that they will be able to say, we grew up in a warm house with lots of open window talking about hard things, with lots of grown-ups who were loved fully and loved us truly, and we felt safe. There were pillows and books and a wood stove. We felt abundance always. We felt our mother was a full being who lived thoughtfully and lived as she pleased. And that word pleased there is, is you know, is spinning in its in its multiple meanings and sort of like shining like a sun but I think you know so many things about this poem are important to me including you're right right like you know even those of us who have been quote unquote good girls Mm -hmm. and in monogamous relationships for a very very long time but are non-normative 
even only in our minds, you know, maybe not even in our actions. I mean, thank God I'm breaking out, but you know, I've been a good girl for a long, long time. Um, but, but I've had this creative life and I've had this creative pursuit and I've, you know, written about things I shouldn't write about. And I've, you know, wanted to know what's happening inside my body and inside my mind. And if there, is there a soul and, you know, all of these questions that you're kind of not really supposed to ask. And I think that, you know, for me as well, the question is, but what about the children? Mm-hmm. What about the children? Yeah. Are they going to be okay? And I think, you know, this question of we felt our mother was a full being who lived thoughtfully and lived as she pleased is the hope. Uh, is is my hope, you know, of what of what my children, you know, might think, and 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 brings me back again to this question of, well, what does this have to do with poetry, with art, with an artistic life? This being sexuality or living and thinking and making in a, in a kind of way that's outside of the mainstream. Self-defined. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, so first I'll say it's like kind of terrifying for me to read that poem and to hear you read it because in some ways that feels, you know, there's so much like kink and sad, like really pornographic kind of material in that book. But that is one of the scariest passages because Mm. it feels, I mean, first of all, I'm just saying, I hope that that's true, Mm -hmm. but it still feels like inappropriate bragging that I should be immediately slapped back for. And that somebody would be like, fuck her. She thinks her children are going to turn out okay and like her. How dare she? Um, And I can't guarantee that they will actually, but I hope that they will. And so far so good. I mean, you know, and and also that that came so directly out of as a response to what was not true about my mother, which has nothing really to do with sex, but the sense that she, you know, and you and I could have a very, very long podcast episode about this. Like, so you had a mother who lived in some ways as she pleased for her artistic career and who left her husband and child and made that choice and, you know, in some ways was sort of tormented about it, but mostly felt really justified and self-righteous about it in ways that were hard and obnoxious for the people who were around her. Mm-hmm. And my mother lived crushed by the blow that she did not mm. get to make those choices. And she wouldn't have known how to do it if she could. She didn't have a, uh artistic ambition or career path in front of her that was clear to her. But it was very... It was continually conveyed to us as her three girl children that she was not living as she pleased and she was pissed off about it and pissed off at us mm. for being part of the reason why she couldn't. I mean, she really wanted to be a mother. It was very important to her. She took that role very seriously. And at the same time, she really resented us that we got in the way of her living her life as she pleased. And, you know, I think for both of us, this has been a daily consideration in our lives as writers, as poets, to think about, you know, how can we live, write, but mostly live into a space that's neither of those things. That's neither resenting our children and feeling bitter and regretful about our own choices, uh, nor abandoning our children 
and um, our responsibilities as good girls and um, fucking everybody over in the process to do whatever the fuck we want. Mm-hmm. There's got to be another way. <laughs> you know, there is, there are many other ways. And, you know, I think you and I are always kind of both seeking those because we know that our mothers were not, they were not happy and they were not happy people to be around. Is there another way? When I first read I Live in the Country, I was upset because um, I'm not in this book. <laughs> I And I was like, what the fuck? And I knew that that was accurate. Like I, you know, but it was painful. It was painful to see it. Like I'm not in the acknowledgments and I'm not one of the women who, you know, or people who, you know, made the sex positive journey with you. And I, I'm not, none of the poems are dedicated to me. And, you know, I, I expect at this point that I'm going to be. Yeah, right. Every fucking yeah. poem is dedicated to I mean, to come on, where ones. am I? Yeah, no, it's and, true. And even, you know, I was just rereading your Inscription to me, which you wrote uh, in Portland on March 2020. Um, uh Uh-huh. And you said, the journey our friendship was taking as I wrote and lived these poems was intense and also feels now like a lifetime ago. Thank you for still being here with me. And I really want to know what you think of these poems, many of which I don't think I read to you as I wrote them, which isn't usual, of course. And then you wrote, I love E," and crossed that out and wrote, I love you so much, Ariel. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, so I, this is this is about our friendship, but I also think it's a, it's a larger thing as well. I mean, anytime you go against the mainstream culture, anytime you, you live um, or act in a way that's counterculture, you know, you really, you you're going to get pushback and that pushback can come from, you know, lots of different places. So, you know, the kinds of emotions that you're describing from your mother of uh, jealousy, regret over her own life, but also, you know, she made her choices. You know, I, I mean, certainly I felt and, and, and was very open about this, like jealous why, why do you get to why do you get to have a husband, nice husband and children and a tenured job and then leave the tenured job and, you know, move to the country and then get a boyfriend and live with the boyfriend and have the children not be traumatized, not only not traumatized, but thriving and then marry this, the boyfriend and divorce the other husband and, but still be on good terms with him and live nearby. And, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, I remember when you, when you were first, uh, when you opened up your marriage and you were, um, seeing Mike and, and, you know, then Mike moved in with you and Rob. I mean, I remember Josh said, like, I really need this to not work out. Um, <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, cause I, you know, you already had a lot of feelings about him, but I was like, oh, I'm not going to tell you this. And I, I know what he meant, you know, like I was like, I really need this to work out because I love Ariel and I love Rob and I didn't love Mike yet, but I loved the kids. And I was like, no, I need this to work out. But I also understand that feeling of like, I, because I was stuck and for sure Josh was stuck also in a 
place where I was not making the choices that I wanted to make. And I needed to feel that there was some kind of reward coming for me for continuing to be unhappy or to continuing not to pursue pleasure. And we, you know, you basically said there are other ways of living to me over and over and over again. And, you know, you were gently, quietly, lovingly saying these things to me for a long time. And I was listening. But then when you went out and were really like, not, not without complication, not without sadness, not, you know, but, but living a wholesome life, which was whole, which included all of these things. And you were succeeding. You, you, you did not get struck by lightning. Thank God, you know, and your and your children, you know, we all have our problems, but it couldn't be clearer to me that this was not one of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, oh, yeah, oh, they having, have struggles. Having, having two loving fathers in their lives was not the problem that was that was an asset and having a happy mother who was um in touch with her desires and her feelings who was not feeling thwarted who was not you know who who was attentive and loving to them so in any case I think that this it's very scary to me to imagine other people's jealousy And I think you have lived a life where you have risked many things, including provoking jealousy in in other people. What is my question? I don't know. I lost track. I have so many things to say, but like, you know, we talk about scarcity and abundance so much. I grew up with an enormous amount of um, sense of scarcity, not actual scarcity. There was some actual scarcity, but we were okay but my parents both made it seem like we were always on the verge of not being okay financially, emotionally, mental health wise, every possible way. And that there was not enough to go around, not enough love, not enough attention. These were not just like perceptions. These were things that we were told. My mother did not believe in unconditional love. She believed it had to be earned. She did not trust herself to love her children unconditionally. She did not do it. She was also very ill for 18, the last 18 years of her life and thought she was always about to die, which she was, and she did eventually die. And so she had genuine scarcity of mortality. There were so many kinds of scarcity. And I have really, my, I feel like my adulthood has been all about a journey toward like deprogramming myself from that mentality and trying to reprogram myself towards uh, abundance and Mm -hmm. jealousy is about scarcity like always and that feeling um, which I've heard so much and which makes total sense to me I get it of like how come you get two good husbands when Mm -hmm. I can't even get one Mm -hmm. that's a scarcity statement like it's the idea that there aren't enough good men to go around which maybe there aren't like I'm not you know I mean I I don't know I think I don't really totally believe that I actually believe that like if you have more realistic expectations and don't go into relationship with like these really bizarre ideas that we have around things like soulmates and monogamy and um, uh, you'll be a lot happier actually. (laughs) Like it, like it actually, it'll work out a lot. You'll think that you have a good man, but anyway, that's like a whole other conversation, but yeah, I mean that idea of like living from abundance, living with abundance, 
that made me think of something that I've never really thought of before or articulated this way before, which is that I really believe that like, if you allow yourself to be interested in yourself and pursue your own interests, which is a kind of abundance for sure, then you also allow space to be interested in other people Mm. and in their interests. And my mother did not feel that she had the space to pursue her own interests. And so she was also really jealous that any of us had any others and we were not really allowed to. Mm. And it so informs my parenting that like, I get to pursue my own interests. There's no, I mean, there obviously are real restrictions about time and money and everything else, but like for the most part, if I want to do something, I try to do it. I try to give it to myself. And when my children want to do something or are interested in something, I try to make that happen for them too. Mm. Um, because I believe that that is like such a pathway towards happiness and fulfillment. And so of course I want it for my children, but like, it has to start with myself. Like if I'm not giving that to myself, then I'm not going to be good at giving it to them. And, you know, I think that largely my kids are okay because they feel like they're allowed to have interests and that their interests are valid. Um, and that they grew up around people who have their own interests. I mean, we just talked about this at the dinner table the other night, cause my kids are both like really obsessed with the idea of fandom hmm. and that they're, they're both like obsessive fans about certain things. Like Willa has bands and Jem is obsessed with Japanese monster movies, Kaiju right now. Hmm. And they were both kind of like, well, do you guys have, I think Jem said like, do you guys have fandoms? And I was like, of course we, like, you know, that we do. And he was like, really? What are they? And I was like, look at Mike. Like he was, I think, you know, wearing simultaneously like a 49ers football jersey and <laughs> like some star Wars, something or other, you know, I'm like, he's got more fandoms, you know? So anyway, we had a conversation about that, but they were like, oh yeah. Like our children know actually what we're interested in. Mm. And this year for Hanukkah, winter's veil, whatever we call it, uh, the holidays, we had them get us presents and we like paid for it, but we said, you know, you guys talk about it and you pick out what you think you should get for each of us. And it was like the most moving and satisfying thing because for each of us, they really knew us Mm. like they're paying attention and not in like a weird, unhealthy codependent way that like I did, we did with my mother where we were like terrified to upset her or disappoint her. And so we tried so hard and she was actually never happy you know, they really were like, well, Dada, Rob likes photography and he's very interested in the history of Russia. So we should get him a book of photographs of Russia. Mm. I mean, when Rob got that book, which I helped them find, like they didn't know what to do with that information exactly. But like we found a book and Rob was like, he couldn't get over it. He was Mm. just like, you knew to like, I don't know what this book is, but you knew to get this for me. Like, really? It was so sweet. And I really feel like that comes from the fact that like everyone in our household is encouraged to pursue their passions, you know, whatever those are and including me, the mom, which, you know, that Kristen wig, uh, <laughs> SNL skit, if I got the a robe, robe, the robe, like <laughs> this is not a household. Like if I get a robe, it's because I goddamn wanted that, that very specific robe, <laughs> you know, like that's not, I, I, we don't subscribe to that here. So that in a way, what you're talking about is a much more positive way of describing what earlier I was describing as entitlement, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like, enti- like, like the, the 
the attraction to someone who believes in their own interests or who feels that they have a they have their worth and value yes yes yes. that they've been encouraged to pursue the things that give them joy and you know like whatever those are Um, and pay attention to those of others like simultaneous but those are that those go hand in hand that it's not about you're either selfish and this is so central to my weird sexuality and to my childhood which is like if you do what you most want, then you're selfish. You're a mm-hmm. selfish, spoiled brat. And yep. so what, and that is the worst thing to be. And so what I'm most turned on by is quote unquote, like total air quotes around like, cons- like enthusiastically consensual role-playing expressions of selfishness, self-indulgence and spoiling, because mm-hmm. those are like the most taboo things to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is definitely about entitlement. And yeah. Like that, that sort of sense of like, I can take what I want. Yeah. But one fantasy that I think you seem to understand very, very closely is, is the, for, I'll speak for myself, a man who wants to do what he wants and it just so happens that what he wants is to give me a lot of pleasure. <laughs> that's a good one yeah. you know like but it has to it's it's it has to be what he wants it has to come from his desire yeah yeah for sure yeah and I think that there's you know I think that I think that there are a lot of men and a lot of uh very sensitive and thoughtful and feminist men who are afraid of female desire or female pleasure and um, of masculine desire and of masculine desire but I think it's sort of like it, it they're related right because it's like oh if i really did what i wanted it would be bad yeah and i don't even think that it necessarily would be right. bad right no. it's just it's 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 like not being able to even explore it right it's like it's like th- this feeling of like you know oh what you know if i if i got in touch with my masculinity i would like what wake up with a AK-47 and my hands unknowingly and like shoot everybody but I you know I think that that is um most men wouldn't actually do that um yeah I mean we also live you know we we are in a country that was founded by Puritans and there is also just and white Anglo-Saxon Protestants uh and all you have to do is watch the crown to really understand <laughs> Rob's family and the kind of roots of our sexual repression. But, you know, like the expressions of unbridled desire was the note I wrote to myself when you were talking, like, I think mm. are scary to most people for various reasons, because of vulnerability, because of being told that we shouldn't speak up because of puritanical shame. And most of us what we most of us feel is like the hottest thing on earth is expressions of unbridled desire in one way or another. And I will say like, also, you know, that this thing that you're describing as like a masculine expression of entitlement, again, like I think is hottest coming from a butch non-cisgendered male person, because like when you hear those words coming out of the mouth of a butch person, who's just like, come over here and suck my cock. It's so hot because it's like, you are fucking with everything right now. Like with every level of this 
like perceptions around entitlement, perceptions around masculinity, you know, like how you came to be a person who is, you know, has a butch presentation and feels in this moment that they can tell some other person to like get down on their knees and suck their cock is that is, there's no way that is not hard one. And there's no way that is not political. Mm. And there's no way that it's not, that's not subversive, you know? Mm. So, you know, I mean, and we could talk about this in terms of race too. Like, I think there's, I'm less equipped to talk about that and, or more uncomfortable, I guess, but like, there's really interesting expressions around that too. I think, um, you know, for non-white men to find access, genuine expressions of their sexuality that are sort of like outside of, or subverting the perceptions around the ways that they're allowed to or expected to be sexual beings in the world is very complicated to like, I mean, anything right. Other than like cisgendered straight, white, rich guy is complicates like these, these, these perceived notions. Yeah. And, and okay. So this leads me to, you know, the, the, I, I, the last poem in I live in the country ends with a, these lines that are, are so powerful all of this could be an erotics, should I so choose, and I so choose. You know, that word erotics, because here I feel like you're, you're talking about erotics is also a poetics, is a politics, is also, you know, a way of living. It's not just like, oh, this turns me on, or right. I sleep with this kind of person in this kind of way. And I I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, because like, I'm, I'm basically asking the same question over and over again in different ways. Like, what does this have to do with writing? What does this have right. to do with living? What does this have to do with life outside of the moment of sexuality or physical intimacy? And so I've, I was thinking about your column in The Rumpus and the, and, and the book that you're starting to work on. But I was like, like why should, if someone's, you know, erotics don't, don't, have anything to do they think with kink and fetish why should they explore the notion of kink and fetish even on a creative level or you know like what why why did you talk about that column I guess unless there's another way you want to talk about yeah I mean I guess I would say that like you don't need to explore kink or fetish you just need to explore or I would you don't need to but I would I would invite you to explore the notion of having an erotics, which is, I would say like very parallel to the notion of having an artistic, like having an erotic life, which is parallel to the notion of having an artistic life or having a creative life. Many of us do not feel like we have an artistic life or a creative life, even if we occasionally do creative or artistic things, right? Like maybe we, we made a painting one time or like we cook dinner actually every night but we don't think of that. We don't think of ourselves as like operating in a creative or artistic sphere or having a creative or artistic practice. And I think many people have sex sometimes that, uh, you know, that even if you have sex sometimes or often within your relationship or whatever, or casually, that that's not, you don't have an erotic love. That's different than having, than imagining yourself to have an erotic life or to have an erotic sphere or an erotic self, like a creative self, an erotic self, like that we just don't, you know, there's things that we do 
you know, maybe like you exercise sometimes, but you don't think of yourselves as like having an athletic practice or a wellness practice. Mm. And to just reframe it that way of like, this is a part, this is an important facet of my selfhood. And it's something that even when I'm not doing it, it's like a dedicated like thread in my life, a, you know, practice, a practice that even when I'm not practicing it, it's still a practice because it's still something I plan to return to, or that I'm thinking about, or, or, you know, thinking toward, um, and that I, you know, there's asexual people. I don't want to like say that everybody has to do this, but I, I think far too many of us, and I'm going to say, especially mothers, you know, really cut themselves off from thinking about having an erotic self or an erotic life, Mm -hmm. no matter how much sex you are or not having. And I mean, I know women who are having affairs, you know, like really making a lot of effort to pursue eroticism in their lives, like to the detriment of their primary relationships or, you know, their safety or sanity or whatever, um, who still don't think like, oh, well, I'm, you know, in pursuit of my erotic life, like who, who aren't letting themselves kind of think about it in that way. And that's, I, I think for a lot of people that that ends up being, uh, they feel like they're missing out or they don't feel whole or they don't feel, you know, pleased mm-hmm. <laughs> with themselves um, because they don't, they don't prioritize it. I mean, I, I think I talk about this a lot in the book, but like one of the things that I've so value about just being in these like sexually non-normative communities, whether that be of swingers or of BDSM people or in queer community is like the emphasis that a lot of those people proudly and like boldly and shamelessly, and I really mean sort of like shamelessly put on their erotic fulfillment. Mm. They're like, that's important to me. Like, you know, and you know, I think about, I, I pursue this in every avenue of my life. But like, I think about this with food, you know, there's people who are just like, yeah, I eat because one has to eat to survive. I put calories in my body. And then there's others of us who are like, every meal is like an opportunity for pleasure and delight and creativity and excitement and adventure, you know? And I think it's the same for sex. Like there are people like, yeah, I have sex, like, or I masturbate or whatever. Like I, I orgasm sometimes, or like I touch myself, but I don't, you know, I don't like look to it as like an escape and an adventure and an exploration and a a way of like achieving nirvana. (laughs) And, you know, that's, that's sort of the difference, right? Like, and, and do you see, I, I, I didn't think of this question before, so I don't know how to ask it, but who are the poets or what is the poetics of an erotics of, abundance of pleasure of sex positivity of hedonism of of wanting the the kind of 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 wanting to see the mundane sort of sustenance parts of life as art or artful mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of wanting to engage or being turned on or like fascinated by the performance of identity as much or more than identity. Oh, that's interesting. That seems like a sec a separate question to me. Okay. Like when the first question I was thinking, well, like first Frank O'Hara, who is one of my all-time faves, mm-hmm. um, and the poem that I most like know by heart and recite by heart, which is my heart, which is the poem called My Heart, in which he sort of just like 
I mean, I think all of Frank O'Hara's, you know, they're called, I do this, I do that poems, but really they're kind of about like, I proudly do this. And I proudly do that poems are like, and then I have these friends and then I go to this party and then I go shopping and then I do this thing. And I'm happy. I'm happy doing this. And I'm happy doing that. I'm happy doing this. And I'm happy doing that. And I mean, they're just such joy. Like they're just such joyful poems. And you know, they're not, not, not obnoxious in that. Again, it's hard earned there. He's a gay man in the fifties, but like he, you know, he's like, yeah, fuck you. Like I'm going to be happy and I have friends and I enjoy life and I enjoy New York city and I go to museums and I see art and I eat sandwiches and it's all fun. And like, they're just so fun. Um, and so then I think of like my two, maybe bigot, like the writers I most wish I was um, are probably James Joyce and Nabokov. And they are also writers of just like, I'm going to have fun here. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be difficult, but it is going to be fun. And I'm just like, I'm going to keep writing this sentence until I've like squeezed every last bit of fun I possibly can from the language itself. Um, And also what I'm writing about. I'm going to write about sex and like eating actually a lot uh, in Joyce, um, especially. And Joyce was also a kinky fucker, Um, uh, (laughs) as was D.H. Lawrence, um, who's also does this of this. I I think Nabokov probably was too, but I don't, I haven't read his biography. Um, He had a very happy marriage as did Joyce uh, and as did Lawrence, I think. Um, And, you know, in all of them, like, they're pushing the very boundaries of the medium forward. They're like, I'm not going to hold to any of the conventions or rules of how you're supposed to do this. And I just love language so much. And like the love of language is going to come through in every single line. And I'm going to write about pleasure Um, and the difficulties of that, I guess. But like, and then I think of a writer like Jim Harrison, uh, mostly his nonfiction, but, you know, a, a writer who often is most often described as like carnal. He writes a lot about sex and eating. Mm. He was like a food writer toward the end of his life. But I love his book so much because there's just so much like desire in them and he acts on it. You know, I was talking, we can talk about this so much, but like you were asking, we've been talking about like loving men and masculinity and, you know, the difference between a womanizer and somebody and an asshole, I guess. Like if a womanizer is by definition, somebody who just really loves women and wants to be around them as much as possible and have sex with them as much as possible. And that sex is always enthusiastically consensual. I have no problem with that. In fact, I find it really sexy. Um, The problem obviously is when it gets into like bad behavior and um, disrespecting women. But, you know, we watched, we watched uh, Warren Beatty's film Shampoo twice now in the last couple of years. And I find it fascinating on every level, but really, you know, it's, he's not Warren Beatty, but he's like this character who just women are throw, literally throw themselves at him. And he loves those women. Like he loves them. He's interested in them. He respects them. He's overwhelmed. He's not juggling it well. He's not handling it well. And he knows that. In fact, like, you know, I think the, the perception of that film is that it's about this like gigolo who's like so glamorous and it's great, but like his life is not going well. He is a loser compared to all of the women in his life, all of whom have done a better job at figuring out what they want than he has. And all of the women in his life are vastly interesting. Hmm. They are Goldie Hawn and Julie Christie and, and uh, what's her Lee's last name? 
Lee Grant, amazing. Lee Grant, Jewish, older actress who's so sexy and probably in her 50s. Um, and you know, you're just like, uh, they're good. I mean, they're mad at him that if he's lying to them, which he sometimes does, although he tries not to lie to them as much as possible. And he just wants to be with a lot of women because he really likes women. And, you know, Jim Harrison's books are kind of like that. Like, he's just like, he's never putting these women down. He never, no matter what they look like and they're every possible age and size and color that he thinks they're all stunning. Mm. You know, as does Warren Beatty and Shampoo. Like they're all stunned. Like you never feel at any time like, why would he want to be with her? Like I feel like there's so many depictions. Like I really wanted to like um Californication because I really like David mm-hmm. Duchovny. Mm-hmm. And I watched a couple episodes, I think, with Mike, who had seen it before. And immediately I was like, I can't watch this. This is sex negative crap. He's miserable. He hates the women he's with. He doesn't treat them nicely. They're miserable. Like, this is not my idea of like sexy fun. Nobody's having fun here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in like Jim Harrison and then James Joyce, like people are having fun and they really like, you know, no matter like what the class differences are or like all these amazing differences that come up um, in both Joyce and Harrison, like they're just like, you are an incredible creature that I feel blessed to be able to spend time with, you know? And, um, and I realized that these are all men that I've mentioned in terms of writers. And so I also am thinking of um, that Ann Waldman's book, Outrider, was so important to me as I was working on Come Along With Me. And that sense of like really positioning yourself as an outrider, outsider, cowboy, cowgirl, um, rebel girl, proudly and boldly you know, I think maybe Ann Waldman does that more than anybody that mm. I can think of right now. Um, and from a place of joy, like uh-huh. not a place, I mean, you know, it's complicated. It's not like all joy, but I think she's, you know, trying to access pleasure in the work often. That work was really important to me. Why do you even like me? I, I, I wrote down all these things, you know, proud, happy, joy, uh, uh, positive, erotic, carnal. I was like, oh, my God, I'm not love, love, love. Uh, I, I don't do I don't I don't write about any of these things or with any of these things. And I started to I started to think, what is what is uh, what is wrong with me? <laughs> what? Do you remember? My heart. Do you want to recite it? Yeah, I might mess it up, but um, oh gosh. Okay, let me try. I'm not going to cry all the time, nor shall I laugh all the time. I don't prefer one strain to the other. I'd have the immediacy of a bad movie, not just a sleeper, but also the big overproduced first run kind. It's got to be at least as alive as the vulgar. I don't wear, oh gosh, I don't wear brown and gray suits all the time. I'm getting it wrong. Um, No, I wear work shirts to the opera often. I want my feet to be bare. I want my face to be shaven and my heart. Well, you can't plan on the heart, but the better part of it, my poetry is open. Oh, that's a beautiful poem. I don't know that poem. Oh, good. Really? Yeah. Kind of words to live by. Okay, so let me ask you a question about Frank O'Hara. You were like, yes, but, but you know, it's hard won. Why? Why is that important to you? Like, what if it hadn't been hard won? Well, then it's not, 
it's not um, drag and it's not passing and it's not thoughtful and it doesn't have that level of like insight and performance. I mean, yeah, if you're just, you know, if he was just like a white man of privilege who had had everything kind of handed to him and was living a completely nor heteronormative life that worked for him, then this whole idea of like my heart being open is just it's it's not complicated by anything I mean you know the reason I find it I was just thinking about this last night like so fascinating that Joyce chose to make the character at the center of Ulysses a Jew which he was not but like I think it's really central to the whole idea of that book that like that guy has to be an outsider like he has to he has to be an outsider in Dublin Mm -hmm. um he can't just be a Dubliner, right? Like in the, in the short stories. And yeah, I think it's that, it's that queer lens idea. Like, first of all, it's just what I feel most kinship with. It's, it's my own vantage point in a lot of ways. And uh, it's what's most interesting to me and, and the voices that, that need to be heard, I guess. I mean, I, I guess, I don't really know. I get, I suppose what like an expression of pure happiness would be that would not be hard won in some way. I think for most people, it's not so easy. Um, but I think when there's like genuine identity politics complicating it, then it just gets a lot richer. So I feel like we're doing a great job um, giving people a, a, a sense of what our conversations actually yeah. sound like it's I mean this true. is this is really this is really you know this is what our conversations sound like yeah, and what's more with with uh 80% more fetching maybe yeah that's true <laughs> I ha- I haven't really whined at, hardly at all know, you, are, right? you are you don't whine as much as I do <laughs> <laughs> um uh but so here are the things that I, you know, because we're going to run out of time, as always. But, you know, I imagine saying like, okay, Ariel, tell, you know, how did we meet? You know, tell the story of our friendship. I mean, I do think that, like, you know, I've been wanting to have you on Commonplace since the very beginning. It's crazy that you haven't been on. I mean, we have written, I, I guess, three books together but it feels like a hundred. Um, and I've said in many different like interviews and stuff that I really feel like even though I didn't write Mothers with you, that um, Mothers is very much uh, kind of because it came after home birth and after this this process of like really writing collaboratively with you, that it's it was almost like I was writing to myself but very aware of the absence of you, the absence of your voice and kind of into that loneliness, you know, but, but, but the truth is like, even though you try to pretend that I'm not in these poems and you don't (laughs) mention me in I live in the country and other dirty poems, I'm in there. You can't escape me. I'm everywhere. And you are everywhere in my work and in my life. And, you know, I think, I don't really know what to say about that. Like maybe, maybe we need someone else to interview <laughs> us both about our friendship. I mean, I think it's so interesting that you said the thing about that you're not in that book. Cause I am so conscious of it. Like it really occurs to me all the time. And even just knowing that we were going to have this conversation today, I was like, Oh shit, that's the book that she's not dedicated to her. 
And, you know, for good reason mm-hmm. that we both know, but that's painful for both of us because, you know, and I would say that earlier in this conversation where you were talking about, like Josh said, I hope it doesn't work out. And you're like, but mm-hmm. I hope it does. I was like, there was an earlier stage of that where you were not, you were literally were like, I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Don't tell me, I don't want to hear it. And that was very hard. And maybe one of the only times in our friendship that either of us has said to the other, don't tell me about something that's going on in your life. Like the most pressing thing actually that's going on in your life. Don't share it with me. And you, you set a boundary about it. And I mean, I, I don't think that that was a mistake. Like, I think there were good reasons for you to set that boundary and it was important to do so. And that you wouldn't have been a good person for me to talk to about it uh, at that time. But there was like a whole phase of like coming into those poems and that book that you really weren't there for. And that this has happened on the other side, that there are books that you have where I'm not thanked. And I still feel every time I open that book, like I love the book and I'm mad at you. I love the book and I'm mad at you. There's no book that you're not thanked in. I don't know if that's true. And I think, but, and again, like appropriately, because there are books that I didn't read or I was, you know, and there's often in your books, like, oh, thank you to my readers, Doug, and, you know, Mm -hmm. everybody else who's been on Commonplace and not me because I didn't read the (laughs) book. Like, I can't claim credit. Like, I didn't read the book. Uh I wasn't one of your readers in that way. I mean, we often hear each other's poems, but, um, you know, that those have been painful moments in our friendship. And it's so interesting how we have this like thing in our friendship that most people do not have in their friendship, which is like a record of it in a published, but mostly unread, let's be honest, small press poetry (laughs) book where it's like documenting the kind of, you know, peaks and valleys of our friendship by whether or not we're acknowledging or thanking each other or writing poems to each other or in response to each other's poems so weird like it's just such a such a funny thing and true and just true yeah I think that there's no I, I I mean as we talk about all the time I'm an only child I don't have siblings I I don't have sisters you have two sisters you know so I was about to say there's no model for our relationship you know, maybe sisterhood uh, is, is is similar. It has some overlap. To some extent, I think that, you know, there were so many reasons. You know, when you said, like, that I set boundaries around it, what you're talking about is you telling me that you were opening up your marriage and, you know, the, the beginning. Like boring, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there were a lot of reasons, jealousy being one of them, fear being another but but I'll, you know and i did set boundaries but i think i i do think also like and it, and it was i think it was the most painful of of conflicts that we'd had or it wasn't even really a conflict but i don't think it was the only one like that i mean no, you know i don't even think it was more painful i feel worse about stuff when your mom died and in mothers even though you wrote that sort of still in conversation with me and certainly informed by the conversations we've had about our mothers. I mean, I certainly don't have any other friends that I talk to about our mothers or both of our mothers mm-hmm. the way I do with you. And I don't think you do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there was a real way in which I failed you around that book's production and that book's reading. And I remember reading that book in manuscript form where I was like, Rachel, this is a really good book. And the whole second half of the book is how you hate about how you hate me. What? Yeah. You don't remember this? No. Yeah. There was like an early version of that book where you really were like actively sort of erasing me 
from the narrative where I was like, wait, I was there. And you were like, you had taken me, you were so angry at me for good reason. Um, because I really had not been there for you. And the, and these things also overlapped. Yeah. So like you were already um, mad at me or, you know, feeling uncomfortable about me opening up my marriage and having this thing I couldn't talk to you about. And so when, then when your mother died, you were already furious with me and I did not know how to approach you. Oh, that happened moment. before you opened your marriage before my mom died. Yeah. Cause I, we opened our marriage pretty much as like six months after we moved to Maine. Wow. What's what year did your mom die? 2013 it's just eight it's been eight years exactly we opened in that was the thick of it we opened in 2012 that's interesting that's really really interesting I mean yeah I I mean you know we I thought that when I became a writer part of what was going to be so great about it not that I ever like became a writer but I was like oh you do this alone and you know when we met I had Joan, but very few other female friends. Yeah, she's not a writer, you know, and uh, and yeah, our relationship. It's some ways it feels like a marriage, although my marriage also felt like a friendship in certain ways. So you know, (laughs) it's a little complicated, but um, yeah, I mean, and like a sibling relationship. I and like a yes, and 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 there's you know, competition, (laughs) and there's jealousy, and there's you know, and there's like, well, you weren't there for me then. And you weren't there for me then. And you didn't want to hear it. And you didn't want to hear it. And this is what happened. And remember that. And, you know, you, uh, you didn't save me a seat at the, you know, like, I, I can't even, you know, like th- yeah, these kinds yeah. of things, you know. Um, but then despite it all, or because of it, you know, we, I, I have never, I, I mean, I was at uh, Willa's birth. I, you know, I mean, there's so many points in our relationship that have, changed the course of my life and even if I was disappointed which is different than you not being there for me even if I was disappointed in what happened around my mom's death I mean your mom had died first and um we I mean I talking to you about your mom and her presence and her not presence and her death and, you know, all of these things, I mean, was absolutely a big part of my mom's death and me processing my mom's death. So every single part, you know, I feel like of our friendship, even if it's been complicated. um, And I do see this with my kids. Like I'm like, oh, they're, they're working things out in their relationships with each other that hopefully will make them better partners and, you know, better parents. And yeah, it's, I just keep thinking about um, how you said I'm 10 years ahead of you, which I don't think is probably the right number. And I wish we could actually figure out the right number because it occurs to me that like the, like, so the number, like, so it's two years with home birth, right. From Willa's birth to Judah's birth mm-hmm. to two, three. Yep. Two. And then I was just thinking like, oh, my mom died four years, maybe three years before your mom. Mm-hmm. Like it is like, it would be interesting to try to go back and see these like right. very particular, you know, kind well, of what's, landmarks. What's, <laughs> what's so annoying about you is I'll, there are things I did first, but it's like, I didn't do them the right way or I didn't do them thoughtfully. <laughs> no. I, so like I got married first. I had children first. 
but I'm never, I'm not, I am never first. That's not true. I mean, I, the marriage, I would not, you actually did help me. I, that was really sort of what solidified, well, what would solidify our friendship was both of our first books coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's really what kind of like, you know, gelled our relationship into what it's become before that we were friends, but we weren't close. Like that's what got us really close in that way. Um, but then marriage, like I actually did, like you were one of my only friends who was married and I was getting married and you'd been married for a while, but you got married before I knew you. And so that wasn't, I didn't have the sort of like benefit of observing it directly, but you did have kids after I knew you. And that was huge for me. And, you know, I started poet moms because I knew you and a handful of other women poets who were trying to figure out how to do that with young children. And, you know, there are poems, obviously, about like you being on the other side of the stream, like waving to me, like, come on over here, like to motherhood land. Um, And I really thought of it that way. And, you know, in a way I would say, yeah, there were things that you, that weren't working for you. I wouldn't say you did the, whatever you just said, you did it wrong or whatever, but like it didn't, it wasn't working for you. And I learned a lot from Mm -hmm. seeing what wasn't working for you. and. You know what? Maybe we have a mother-daughter relationship, but it keeps switching. <laughs> and it's just a non-normative one. Luckily, we don't have either of our mother-daughter. Right. Well, that's the thing, because we don't we don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, we're we're making our own motherhood, but I think that we're in part making it with each other. Like mm-hmm you know, seeing how the other mothers, how, I mean, you know, it's a very clear to me that, that like my feelings of deprivation, like when you opened your marriage, I mean, part of it was like, oh, what does this mean about me? You know, what does this mean about my marriage? You know, but part of it was just like, really, you're going to pay attention. You're going to have more people in your life that you're going to be like uh, paying attention. It was so such mad at Mike for just I, oh my, somebody I was interested in. I mean, when I first met Mike, I just sat there and you were, wept you were <laughs> in public, in public. We were at AWP oh, and I best. just sat and wept and wept and people would come and go and, oh, this is Mike, you know, my boyfriend. And I was like, and this is Mike crazy friend who sits here weeping but it was like the best also um test of Mike like I always we always say that when we met first met in the 90s you know I had my dog with me when we first met and she was a pit bull mix rescue who uh had an incredible radar for like bad news people and she would just go crazy like she wouldn't go crazy but she would just start growling like my grandparents for example my mother's parents she would not let them in the apartment and this is not normal for her, but she like really knew when people were bad news. And the first time she, and she was cautious about people generally. When she first met Mike, she was like instantly ran into his arms. And I was like, okay, he's not going to rape me. You know, like I, it was really like a crazy test and having him sit there in public in a hotel room while you just furiously wept and like expressed. It was in the lobby, not a hotel room. Yeah. Right. No, in a hotel. Right. Uh, and said like wept, but also said like, I'm so angry at you for loving this other person who's sitting right here and yeah. not me right now. And he just like, was like, great, like not great, but he was just like, okay, this is, this is going to be a friendship that's going to be present 
in this woman's life that I'm going to be with, you know, and he adores you and like wants to spend time with you all the time. And like, that was such a good testament to like, I was like, okay, he's, he's a keeper. I was like, you, yeah, fine. You can have one husband, (laughs) but then it's me. You can have children. You can have books. Like that was, that was, I was, I was not jealous of those things. I was really, I felt like part of it. Yeah. And then I just did not feel part of it. And I really did not like the it. The sisters are, yeah. And the sisters are another, I mean, I would say like the, the model, which neither of us have is what it would be like to have a very, very close sister who was also your business partner and in your field. And this happens, right? Like the Olsen twins, mm-hmm. thinking about fashion, Rodarte, the fashion label, it's like two sisters they work together, like they're, they're all their money is tied together. They're like mm-hmm. future prospects, their career, their ambition and their childhoods and like everything. And I mean, I don't even know what that's like, but I feel like that would be the closest model for what we have. Because- I have always wanted that. I have always wanted that. And I, it probably sucks, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, I think it's both, right? It's probably right. incredible. And I mean, both of those ones that I just mentioned, they've been working together successfully for decades yeah okay tell me tell tell me what you're working on now and I'm going to try not to go on a whole long tangent about how you basically have kept an entire book project for me (laughs) (laughs) trying to cut me out of it again now I'm have to catch up but yeah what are you working on now it's uh unlike anything I've ever done before because it came to me it's not something I sought out um because of the series that I edited for The Rumpus, which was a series of original essays I mostly solicited from writers who are, well, from people who are engaged in both like an ongoing literary practice and an ongoing kink practice, um, where I asked them to really think about a way in which their writing practice is, has a parallel to their kink practice. Um, which is like the most niche thing that we could ever possibly imagine. So it's really ridiculous actually, but um, amazingly, the rumpus was like, sure, we'll publish that. And I found writers to write them and I it was very hands-on editing. I feel very, very proud of the editing I did on a lot of those essays. I mean, some of them were quite fully formed when they came in, but with a lot of the others in order for it to fit this like ridiculous niche parameters that I had come up with, uh, I had to kind of really shape that had work on shaping them. And, and some of the writers were also pretty new writers or had never written about kink before or both. And that was extremely rewarding experience, but it wasn't my own writing. Um, it was just my editing and my idea, but uh, a, an editor, uh, Catherine Tung, who's at Beacon Press uh, was invited to solicit projects she wanted to publish as books, nonfiction books. And she found me through that column and asked if I would like to write a nonfiction book that was not memoir and not a how-to and smart and, you know, like a thinky piece book about kink, which she didn't think existed. And I was thrilled. And she said like, I'm not really work with you uh, on a proposal to kind of get it through our board and, you know, can't guarantee anything, but let's, let's work on this together. And she's like very, you know, also like hands-on and, and, um, 
and gave me a little, you know, really helped shape the project, which again, like I didn't have in my mind. It wasn't, it wasn't my idea originally, but we came to an idea that, you know, both she thought was like doable at Beacon and for their list and their mission and uh, a book that I was interested in writing and felt that I was qualified to write. Um, although I will say as I'm working on it every page I'm like why am I qualified to write this and because I'm not I mean I'm not a sexologist I'm not a sex researcher I'm I'm not a clinical uh, therapist I I'm not even like a life coach or anything like that I have zero training in any of those things and for a very long time have thought a lot about writers like Joan Didion and Susan Sontag and Audre Lorde and uh, Bell Hooks and other, you know, kind of public intellectual writers who just write about whatever they damn well please that they happen to be thinking about. Mm-hmm. And that they're just ideas. And, you know, it gets called theory, but it's really just ideas about the world. And so these are my ideas about sex and, and kink. And, and yeah, uh, it's really... It's really an amazing project to get to work on. I feel very fortunate and, but, and it's not like writing a book of poems or even a lyric essay. Um, And it didn't originate with me. So it also feels really different. And it's like, you know, like on deadline for a press that's like got a contract with me. So it just feels so different than any of the kind of literary projects. I mean, I'm aiming for it to be literary certainly in certain ways and it's got a voice and those kinds of things, but it's um it's coming from a really different kind of space, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and you have and you have come along with me to the pasture now is coming out. When does it come out? Who Maybe knows? it'll. Who knows? Okay. Maybe by yeah. I hope. I hope in twenty twenty one. Good. Good. I love that book. Of course. Well, thank you. you know, I love. I love. I live in the country. Also, very, 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 very much. Um, well, I love all your books. Um, I was just thinking, like you had said to me beforehand. You know, that sometimes you ask people what questions they have for you, mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't know. I mean, I ask you questions every day. Yeah. Um, but I was just thinking, like, I thought of the question just as we were talking. Why didn't we collaborate and write the menopause book that we both wanted to write and started, you know, that we both worked on since in fits and starts over the years. And I was thinking, it's so different than writing a book about birth, because that has like a built in timer stopwatch you know, there's just something about pregnancy that's like, so it's a time-based medium, as they say about cinema and other art forms. Uh, Pregnancy is a time-based medium and menopause. I mean, it is, and it isn't like it, you don't know when it's going to, like there's, (laughs) there's, it's going to, it's a long, long time. It just doesn't have that same sense of urgency. And like, when is it ever even really over? Like, Mm -hmm. and so I think that kind of, unfortunately didn't give us the same sense of like urgency but now I think we both feel really sad that we didn't capture a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about I feel so sad about that (laughs) I mean I, I where to even begin I mean I I have a lot to say about that and I'll just briefly say a few things I think that part of that book was I wanted you back I was trying to I was trying to get my foot in the door. I was like, "All right, well, we don't have sex together and you're really interested in sex and having sex, but what do we do? Well, we're friends and we also write together. And you know, we're this book 
is really necessary, a book about perimenopause and about cycles. And, you know, we were dating, um, we were dating each entry with the day of our cycle, uh, not just like the day of the, the Roman solar calendar. And I, and I think part of, there are a lot of things that happened, but one was that things were happening. So many really important, relevant things were happening, um, that all needed to go in the book, but it was just too fast and too much. And I mean, in the space of writing that book, you got divorced, you got married, you, you know, had all of these like sexual experiences, um, that, you were at that point telling me, and I really wanted to know. And, uh, you know, and, and we were going through hormonal changes and I was going through a lot of stuff, um, with my kids and their health and their mental health. Um, but then I, and then I got sick and now I've had this hysterectomy and I feel really, I really, really sad that we didn't keep writing that book um, and that we have no document of what it was like to kind of, um, you know, for me, you know, to say, I think I'm going to end my marriage it to you and for you to, you know, as I did say, but on the phone and not, you know, in text. And I, I, I think about that. I wonder, like, I mean, part of it was logistical and pragmatic, um, but I, I think that there were other things as well that, that were just sort of like each of us were prioritizing for a lot of reasons, other projects, um, you know, other uh, uh, non-writing things, um, and there were so many things going on that we needed to process that we just, like, almost couldn't do both, Um like kept having conversations where we're like, let's stop talking about it and just go right. Right. It's not so easy to do all the time. <laughs> right. And I, and I, I, I actually think we could, instead of having regrets about it, I mean, I'm still stuck in some regrets about it, but we could just say like, I know for myself and I think for you too, I was, I was trying to be like less product oriented. Um, yeah. and, and, and so we don't have a record. We don't have a product. We don't have proof in that way. What we have is the relationship. You know, what we have is the change in our lives. What we have is our other books that we wrote instead of writing that book. Um, but I do feel really sad specifically because now I feel like you're in territory that I don't get to be in. And I, you're right that, that, one doesn't know when, except retroactively, when menopause like has really happened. And, but the loss of my visible cycle is, is really hard for me. And it puts me in a nowhere category where I'm not menopausal or maybe I am. I don't know. Um, I don't really know like what's fully going on in my body and because you haven't had a hysterectomy, I can't even be like, Ariel, what does this mean? What is happening to me? I don't know. Tell me. Yeah. And I think that there's also the larger kind of like metaphoric menopause or like middle, you know, just, I mean, I, I you, you know, you're sort of talking about in past tense, but like, and there's so much that we missed by not writing it down in the last few years, but there's, but it's still ongoing for both yeah. of us. And even with your hysterectomy, like you are still kind of entering into this new phase in your life in an ongoing way 
and I, I am too. And like, there's many years to come still. And especially now that you're getting divorced and everything like, and like eventually neither of us will have children at home and that's years away. Like there's still stages of this, like, you know, middle age part to come that also I would imagine sort of like would go in that book. You know, I think that that book of, you know, you said that you're sort of like in a nowhere space. And I think that's in some ways what this book was meant to be about. Yeah. And you know what? I think it, I, 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 I'm realizing two things. One is that when you had Willa, uh, you know, when you decided you wanted to have a home birth and I was scared and then I, you know, got trained as a doula and ended up at your birth and like had this incredible experience and witnessed this. I, there was sadness there for me because I was like, oh, you know, the births that I had were not the births that I now know to want. But I did get to have, uh, you know, another yeah. birth that was the birth I wanted. And I think that that it's a mind fuck with the hysterectomy because it feels utterly final. Mm. It's like you just can't, you can't get the uterus back. You can't get your cervix back. You can't have a V back. You know, you can't, there's no like, you know, whatever. But I have to see this more metaphorically and realize like, you're right. I am still going to go through menopause literally. Um, but also I am still going through this journey. You know, my fertility is over, but my, you know, all of these other things, you know, and, 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 and hopefully my sexual life is starting again in, in a, in a very, you know, very different way. You know, so that's, that's one thing I really wanted to say. And, you know, this is what happens over and over again in our friendship, which is that um, I rethink by hearing you talk about your own life or about my life or asking me questions, I rethink these assumptions that I have that are, are really damaging to me um, and, and things open up. And the second thing is I really do think both of us have done so much work in the world. It's, it's, it, it mostly, I spend way too much time feeling shitty about myself and my work and am I ever writing again and blah, blah, blah. But we've written a lot of books. How many books have you written? Uh, I don't know, five books of poetry. And then we have edited two anthologies together and I've edited two anthologies with other people and I wrote a textbook and now I'm writing a nonfiction book. And I don't know if that counts home birth or not in there. <laughs> yeah, a bunch. Right, a lot, you know, and and so have I. And we've also done so many other things that are not writing. And I'm not trying to, like, supplant your children or Mike or Rob. But I do feel that one of the most important things that we've done is to document our friendship and to have this friendship and to – and to like explore a literary female feminist friendship. And I do feel, I, I think that whether it's that book or something else, and maybe at this stage in our lives, we need someone to come along and offer to pay us to do it. You know, that might, that might be necessary, but I do think that um, I bet that we look back on our work I I know I I suspect I will look back on my work and feel that 
the collaborations that I've done with you and the way that that we've gone through these journeys together has been incredibly important. Not a side thing, not a hobby, oh, yeah. not a, you know. So I think we have to, I think we could put more energy into that. I think what we've both like learned about communication too and just like, stamina and perseverance and um forgiveness passion yeah like from more than in any of my relation romantic relationships for sure and maybe more than with my siblings too or parents like it's intense and yeah I I definitely agree and I would also say that like even there, as we all know, there's like far too few depictions of female friendships in the media of any kind. Um, but even the ones that there are and that are like, quote unquote, difficult, don't speak to like what we have experienced together in any sense. And I, it just occurs to me that like, so a couple, a few days ago, maybe last week, I read um, this Ann Patchett essay that's in Harper's recently. Um, I forget the name of it, but uh but um, it's an incredible and long essay about, well, you don't know, I don't want to spoil it. Like you think it's going to be about one thing and then it's about something else, which is really about a relationship between two women mm. um, who are not related. And, and it, you know, it's nonfiction. And I was so moved by this piece. It's an incredible essay. And I was sort of like waded into it and it allows you to wade into it and think it's kind of going to be this one thing that's a little bit light and easy and then it's not at all. Um, but it's like so profound and moving and it just keeps going and going. And it's kind of like this durational experience where you're like, what? And now we're where? And, and I afterwards was like, I have to sit, like other people have to read this. And I sent an email to Rob. I mean, I was like talking to Mike about it while he's in the other room. I was like, when the hell she said this? And, um, I sent it to Rob and my sisters hmm. and I was like, literally my fingers were on the keyboard. Like your name was probably in there. And I took it out and it was in there and I put it, took it out. I can't remember if you would like text me that day and you were in a bad place or I think that's what had happened. You'd like text me and you were in a low place. And I was like, it feels insensitive to just like mm. send this thing right now without any context, um, without talking about it first. And so like, I didn't send it to you, but it, like you were the person I most should have sent this essay to in some ways, although it's also not about a relationship like ours at all, but you know, it's attempting to document what happens when two women are in profound relationship with one another, mm. um, two artists, actually two, two women artists. And yeah, so you have to read it. Um, <laughs> and I'll send it to you now, but, uh, it's still, you know, we talked about like how hard it is to find writing about pleasure and sexual pleasure and these other things, but like, oh my God, it's so hard to find books about this, like any, or movies or anything. I it's think it's so I shocking to see it depicted that every time it happens, you're like, whoa, 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 yeah. what, what? Yep. Yep. I think that the answer to your question, why, why aren't we writing that book is that we are, yeah. we just, it's just, um, we took a break. Yeah. I, I like know. that idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. I have to go get STI tested. <laughs> are you going to leave that on the show? I don't know. <laughs> yes. I'm going to leave it on the show. Cause that's what a responsible person does. Mm-hmm. 
you told me that. I have to send you those condoms that I yeah. promised I would send you. I'm going to look at that. Yeah. 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 Love your body by understanding. I mean, it's so hard. We, that's another conversation, but it's really hard. Like, it's a really hard thing to come out of a monogamous marriage uh, and, like, in your 40s or whatever, come to terms with the fact that, like, oh, <laughs> I don't actually know this person that I'm sleeping with that well or who else they're sleeping with. Yeah. And, and also to have, yeah, to have the, the emotional maturity basically of a 23 year old. Right. Well, because that's the last time most of us had recreational sex. Oh my God. I love the term recreational sex. Oh, I say that all the time now. Yeah. That was like new to me for sure. But recreational sex. I never heard that before. Mm -hmm. You could play soccer. You could go to the movies. You could go out to dinner or you could have sex. These are all things one can do for recreation. Is it legal in Maine to have recreational sex? I think it was just legalized. (laughs) You still need one of those fake IDs, but you can like get it from the back of a room. All right. I love you so much. We have to go. This has been episode 93 of Commonplace with Arielle Greenberg. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced, edited, and lovingly brought into being by the Commonplace team. Rachel Zucker, Valentin Conady, Christine LaRusso, Langa Chinyoka, and Nancy Huang. The music you're listening to was composed and performed by Judah Darwin Zucker-Gorin. Many thanks to Four-Way Books, Ricochet Editions, and University of California Press for books for this episode. Many thanks to our patrons and book club members. You make Commonplace possible. And to you, dear listener, take care, be well, I wish you abundance, and thank you for listening.